Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater. Decked drawer systems. I've always loved Decked, as is, but it's even better now because they just redesigned their drawer system and storage cases from the ground up. They got the Deco case line. These cases are as tough, if not tougher, than Pelican case or Go boxes. Totally waterproof and dustproof. You can literally run over them in your truck and they will be fine. High quality latches and handles make them really easy to use. They look great. They are made in the USA. To check it out, go to decked.com slash meat Get yourself free shipping. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. All right, Cal, tell me again what you're reading about. Oh, I got doing all my deep dive research for the week. I came across this Kansas City Star article about uh, a guy who uh, was, uh, like many Americans right now, exploring our national parks. He'd been to uh, several of them, and it appears he was uh, picking up natural mementos from from each park. Sure. Um, No, I got no problem yet. He uh, he was driving through Yellowstone, and a park ranger flagged him down because he had on strapped to the top of the vehicle some like nice branches that still had pine cones on them. You know, like people steal this stuff to make uh, like wreaths and centerpieces and things like that. Um, but it's illegal to take out of national parks. And uh, the guy volunteered the information. He's like, "Oh well." You know, I'm just on my way home. I've been traveling national parks for three weeks. And the ranger was like, really? Well, could I look inside your vehicle uh, for any other natural objects? And the guy is like, yes, but uh, just so you know, you're going to find some stuff. And it was definitely not from other national parks. <laughs> <laughs> and so he had like these. Just do, I'd like to clear one thing up before you look. <laughs> And so, like, she pops the hatch on this uh, Tahoe, Chevy Tahoe, and, you know, there's, like, the giant uh, pine cones. Yeah. 
uh, from like Br- Redwood. Bristle, yeah, the, like the Sequoia National oh, Park, okay. right? She's like, <laughs> well, obviously these came from, and then uh, had, you know, petrified wood and uh, 10 large pine cones, five pine cones with seeds, five large pieces of petrified tree, 63 rocks, a black and blue feather, a live plant with roots still attached, uh, seven pounds of marijuana, uh, <laughs> a large bag of psilocybin mushrooms, $5,000 in cash, two handguns. Um, Stu's ready for, he's ready for a cross-country trip, man. And I was just laughing, thinking, uh, this is a good story for everybody to keep in mind the next time they get stuck behind some vehicle that's like blocking both lanes of traffic <laughs> mysteriously taking pictures of like a uh, prairie dog or something they're like what could be so interesting yeah. <laughs> we had a guy a guy wrote in with a good weed story where this like he says big fan of the show big fan of the podcast big fan of the show and he wanted to send a story about his mountain lion sighting so he's in he's close to the ohio michigan line and he points out that lately they're building a quarry and doing a lot of dynamiting in a quarry. And so he feels that this dynamiting in this quarry is displacing wildlife. And he explains that him and his brother were up on the roof shooting pop cans out towards the woods, which they like doing a lot. And his brother had been smoking a lot of weed. And the sun's setting. And his brother's so high that he thinks that his eyes are playing tricks on him, but his brother says he notices a naked man run on all fours across the backyard (laughs) out by the tree line. (laughs) They both get freaked out, and they want to go investigate. So he grabs his Henry 22, and his brother grabs a wood splitting maul, and they go out to the tree line. And sure enough, here's a mountain lion. They get stricken with absolute fear. He fires his twenty-two in the direction of the mountain lion and um, doesn't think he hit it, and then they ran off. And he asks, uh, you guys heard about any large predators in the area? <laughs> <laughs> so there's a that's how that's how there, there's a mountain lion sighting. That would be uh, an interesting T-shirt design, right? Where it's like, if you think you see this, it could be this. <laughs> Naked man on all fours? Mountain lion. It's probably a cougar. Mm-hmm. So uh, Oliver Nye's here. First time on the show. Absolutely. I'm, glad, morning, I'm glad to finally meet you. You came in from California. Yes, sir. Didn't expect to be here. Tell people what your groove is real quick. So I got another news item I want to share with, or a story that you'll appreciate. My groove. I don't even know you how like to answer You like to go fishing that. a whole bunch? I fish a ton. <laughs> yeah. A lot. And uh, just try to find a new adventure uh, no matter where I am. So whether that's back home in California and trying to doing things that are out of my comfort zone or floating the Yellowstone River for the first time and trying to throw a big plastic fish and seeing oh, what swims so in. Oh, so you were trying to fish, uh, you were taking your largemouth, your California largemouth bass tactics? Yep. Did you catch giants? I got bit. And the line broke. You sure it wasn't a rock or something? Probably was. And I mean, who knows though? So I'm So you didn't you didn't uh flo- you didn't take a fly pole and try it at all? There was a fly rod in the boat, but apparently it was set up <laughs> for disaster because there was like some kind of like backlash that was like wound over it or something. So Karina was like struggling with it at first. 
And then Sam oh, and had a, fishing with you. Yeah, yeah. Crin, you're like a like a river rat now. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I didn't get a chance to actually pick up the fly rod, which I was excited to try because I've only done it a couple times. Yeah. yeah, but I did also want to see what was potentially swimming in that river with a really big lure that I'm sure they've never seen before. A good way to do that, and I've just recently discovered this, is you get a snorkel and mask. Mm. And just go down the damn river. Right. You find out everything. Right. You find out all the secrets. Absolutely. All the secrets. Yeah, I fished with a... People know where there's holes that have fish, but the dude that goes through the snorkel and mask knows where in the hole, like, with, with alarming specificity. Right. Like, what is going on in there? Yeah, I got that perspective uh, fishing on the Sacramento River for big striped bass this past winter, and one of the guys spearfishes them. Yeah. So he, same deal. He knew, he knows exactly where they sit. Where they go. He's like, you know that one rock? Well, to the left of that one rock, and about six inches back, they like to hold there. Right. Yeah, you know <laughs> what is up. So why didn't we bring a snorkel? Oh, I, that's how, like we were talking <laughs> earlier about how I, I figured out some years ago where those big ones hold in the rapids. Oh, right. That's exactly how that happened. Really? Was snorkeling through and being like, holy shit, that's a huge fish sitting right at the bottom of that rapid. If I was a boat builder, I would build a, oh, maybe so hard to not get it scratched up. <laughs> I would build a glass bottom drift boat <laughs> that would be that would be a sketchy proposition a glass right bottom there. drift boat and then i'll be very very careful about where i rode it <laughs> and i would know all secrets i mean i think i don't know if i'd go full see-through bottom i'd like have a little replaceable window because you're gonna oh. scratch it up there's no way you're gonna not scratch you could it have up. a recessed fish eye yeah like dealy smack on there yes that had a <laughs> Ceramic. I like. I like this. Yeah, I like you can this find idea. out what is going on everywhere you went. Uh, Oliver, you'll appreciate the story. A guy. So this guy writes in. He lives on a pond. The pond is managed for trout, but some some derelict introduced largemouth bass into the pond. Everybody in the pond's all mad. So when you, he likes to eat them, the largemouth. He likes to eat the big largemouth because you're spo- if you catch one, you're supposed to kill it because it's supposed to be trout. Um. They used to have brookies and browns in there, and the trout and the bass killed them all. Then they put in rainbows, and now they're trying to kill all the bass. Anyhow, if it's big, he eats it. If it's small, he fires it up in the bushes for raccoons or whatnot to eat it. And he says he catches one the other day and goes to fling it to the bank, but it slips out of his hand mid-stroke, hits a hornet's nest. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> falls into the water, and then the hornet comes down and attacks him. Was his name Bill Dance? No. <laughs> he doesn't say what his name is. <laughs> but that's like some weird karma shit right there. Yeah, yes, it totally. Is. Hit a hornet's nest with a bass, and then the bass got away anyway. Um, I think we talked about this earlier. I got to touch back on this. Some dudes found elk. Did you hear about this? Some dudes found an elk skull. If I was you, I would be reporting on this oh, in th- Cal's Week in Review. This is not Some dudes the in Michigan found an elk skull. Okay, yeah, yeah. And it was like, I was like, oh, some guy threw it in there. Modern time. I don't know. Perfect skull. Like a perfect It is. It elk is skull. a six by six bull. 220 years old. And they, they, they're saying it's an eastern elk. Yeah. 
native which is Michigan an elk, extinct species, southern native elk from southern Michigan, two hundred twenty years ago, big ass bull. Yeah, I was debating the other day. Just yesterday, I was debating someone who was pointing out like, how could we delist wolves when they're not recovered, when they're only recovered across such a small bit of their range? Mm-hmm. And I pointed out that we've only recovered elk on about fourteen percent of their range. Yeah, bighorn sheep is like six. Yeah, and no one says we shouldn't be chasing after elk. Yeah. Southern Michigan, big-ass bull, mature bull. Yeah, no, that was that was quite quite the find. That, that really uh, solidifies that saying of like, well, I like fishing here because you never know what you're going to get. So yeah. was it in a, in a riverbed? Was it that kind in of a lake? In a lake. Yeah. I like how they already got a theory of what happened to it. Got stuck in the mud. <laughs> got stuck in the mud. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I was reading. Not that it died on the ice. Yeah, I mean, there's so many ways that could have gone. It, uh, yeah, so anyways, I don't know. Got stuck in the mud. Oh, the guy got also, hit by a car. Or a uh, uh, guy's driving his car in Tennessee, gets hit with a white bass. <laughs> 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 um, the state of Tennessee is like, well, we don't see a lot of these types of wildlife collisions. What did uh, they think happened? Someone threw it at him? Well, here's the best part, right? They're like, well, our theory is. That an eagle fought an osprey over your car, and the osprey had to release its fish to get away. And then it <laughs> fell and hit your car. I'm I mean, like, that's valid. I'm like, of course there has to be a, it can't just be a fish fell out of the talons of a, <laughs> which happens all the time. Yeah. But it's like. Did they just drop them? There was an air-to-air combat scenario over your vehicle. Uh, to be fair, though, I, I used to see that all the time. Guiding. An osprey oh, would grab yeah. a fish out of the river, and the eagle is just waiting because the osprey is such a better predator in the river. Yes. And the eagle is just hanging back and be like, I'll wait for you to do the work, and then I'm going to steal it from you. Yes. So that does happen. Happens a lot. A lot. Yeah. I've seen it in L.A. Oh, in yeah. In L.A. Yeah. A little what more on this elk real quick. Uh, What the hell is the lake? Dude was uh moving an anchor for a f- swim float. Got hung up on the anchor. Sullivan Lake near Fenton, Michigan, came hooked on the anchor of a swim platform. Drug up the anchor, and here it is. Yeah. That is. Now, in the same little piece I'm reading. They did donate it mm-hmm. to uh, some kind of local museum. I'd have hung at my house. Oh, I know. I would have had a hard, <laughs> hard time. I would have a very difficult time. Being, Plus it, it, I'd have a very difficult time doing the right thing. Now, a buddy of mine, he... I want to let me touch on this real quick in the same piece. So they also recently in a riverbed there uncovered two vertebra from a baleen whale. What? And the only thing they can think is that they were, they were brought in that like the Hopewell culture, one of the, you know, they were brought in as a thing that was cool. Right. When I was, I think I mentioned this before, but um, when I was doing research on historic range of Buffalo in the U.S., you want to talk about something that's barely... Dudes ran into Buffalo in Washington, D.C. New Orleans had them. New Orleans? Yeah. The Texas coast. Uh, Now that's something I can see getting stuck in the mud. Yeah. (laughs) People had counted a thousand of them in what is now Nashville. I can see that. They don't have ESA protection. 
That's true. Now, these baleen, anyways, when I was working on looking at trying to map out that range, people used to include New York as historic range, New York State. And it come that inclusion, I think, you know, it dates back to the discovery of two skulls in New York. Both had cultural markings on them. People now think that someone just brought them so, home. Yeah. Someone thought they were cool. Yeah. So these baleen whale vertebra were like some kind of, tr- you know, the, the best explanation being it was some kind of trade item. I mean, so many artifacts from animals and critters wound up doing that, right? Like, I think I think a good example of that when I was digging in on freshwater drum and they were finding those, the, the otolith bones. Yeah. Like all the way on the other side of the country where they're not even close to have, they've, they've never lived over there. There's no evidence they've ever lived over there. But in archaeological dig sites, they often find those otolith bones from freshwater drum mixed in. Ab- abalone shells in the interior. Yep. Assuming that it was some form of currency or, yeah. or a, a talisman or something. Now, what was I getting at about these vertebra? Was there some other thing I was going to talk about? I, I mean, from what I read, I think I think that's it. You know, it could have been uh, just a cool trade item. Could have been used as like uh, some sort of a vessel. Um, but I don't think that's the only whale. Uh, I don't think that that's the only like whale evidence that there is in that part of the country too. That's the other interesting part for people dragging stuff home. Yes, but and then there was oh, I know what some, I was gonna mention. Go ahead. Something about whales making it up rivers to a certain degree too. Not there, man. No, not there. Okay. No, 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 not there. But like, if you look in, in uh, oh, like I getting think, stranded and dying way up rivers. Yeah, like yeah. Maine has a couple of circumstances of like orcas going way up river. California has some whales that have gone way up river into into uh, desalinated water. Got you. Yeah. What I was going to mention about keeping hoarding stuff for yourself or giving it to museums, a buddy of mine thought he was on public land, okay? And lo and behold, he looks in the riverbed, and here's the mammoth molar. Then he looks, and about 30 inches away, here's another mammoth molar, both facing up. And he's like, what are the chances of that? And then he's like, oh, my gosh. It's like the whole, you know. It's the whole damn skull. Oh, wow. But what's sticking out of the two molars? He said it was about like, he just, I can't remember how he described it, but something like the tip of his one cam on his bow to the other cam on his bow apart. Then he gets to really scrutinizing on X and realizes, in fact, he's not on public land. So he's in a little bit of a conundrum and eventually goes to the <laughs> landowner and was saying, you know, I was kind of accidentally on your property and couldn't help but notice. <laughs> 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 and it uh, it wound up in the museum. <laughs> like that guy was cool about it. We, like donated it. I'd have hoarded that. <laughs> uh, this friend of yours that you speak of though is like the Mother Teresa of uh, people who find cool shit and leave it where it's supposed to be. Yeah. Like he has. He's one of the. He's not that old. Oh, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah but yeah. he's got. Like a photo album of like, oh, do you like dinosaur teeth? Oh, do you like? And you're just like, he's a magnet. He's a magnet for crazy shit, man. That dude finds more crazy shit. I don't know. He's like some people got an eye for it, you know? Yeah. He's got like a fine tuned crazy shit detector in his brain. 
Oh man, it it just you spend a couple minutes looking at that book and you're like, I'm just gonna live in a trailer here in eastern Montana and <laughs> wander the earth. <laughs> Uh, quick couple updates on the ass movement. This is the anti-surface shitting movement. Some people wrote in as we were talking about it. This is a guy who like crusades. He's made it his life mission to crusade against um, taking a growler out on the surface of the earth and then doing nothing to masquerade it. Nothing to tuck, you know. <laughs> tuck it in. <laughs> I'll say that in... Areas where there's no fire damage, I feel the epitome of courtesy is to dig a cat hole, defecate in the cat hole, then burn the teepee. But you got to be careful about fire danger. The only thing that I've been meaning to say on this is there are certain places on earth, basically in, in most of your western states, where the microbial layer the ability for things to be broken down in an efficient manner mm-hmm. can be very, very close to the surface of the earth. Yeah, just ask that elk skull. Yes, yes. Yeah. Land so on the bottom of that lake. Digging a cat hole sometimes beyond four inches um, is going to preserve. You're going to uh, you're going to end up being the author of a preserved specimen that somebody can go look at a uh, hundred thousand years from now. But. Yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. I, so that's just something to like. That doesn't mean you can't flip a rock and burning the TV. Well, I, is something I think I in certain in, too, in certain sure. environments, even flipping a rock, you're probably going to make a like a copper light. Yes, but copper light is the word I was. I am for. more concerned with uh, the aesthetics. Absolutely, like I don't think there's anything inherently icky about a buried human feces, but I think that there's something icky about a surface human feces. Oh, I'll tell you what. And this is coming from a man who has had collections of animal feces, but I don't like the human ones. I don't like ones from dogs. I don't like ones from people. Running this dog around right now <laughs> where, you know, you got a curious puppy. Phil's had this experience. Um, like you, uh, <laughs> some of the trailheads, <laughs> river access sites around here, it's like you got to sprint that puppy through you know, the shit zone where people feel comfortable, like sneaking into the woods yeah, and like get down to the river really fast because that puppy's oh, going to find, it's going to find it needed yeah. and then lick your face. Exactly. Or Corinne's face. <laughs> uh, anyways, a dude wrote in a couple pieces of feedback about anti-surface pooping, anti-surface shit. As a guy wrote in, instead of calling a cat hole, he's like, you should call it an asshole. Anti-surface <laughs> shit and hole. Huh? Hey, that's, that's pretty good. good. I like yeah. that. That's yeah. a good joke. Now, another guy said, I had mentioned who, like, for every anti, there's a pro. Oh, come on. Well, I was just saying, like, is there actually a pro surface shitting movement? (laughs) There 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 absolutely has to be. There is. There is. Like like an organized movement. In Georgia, no, they're not organized. But he says, Georgia and Alabama. He knows he doesn't. He says he gets. He tries to get distance from these people, but he knows them. He knows of them, turkey hunters in Georgia and Alabama, who use taking a growler in strategic locations as a way to discourage competition. Oh, ah. so they might go to like a little park and trailhead area and duke it up real good. 
thinking that it just sends people elsewhere. Oh, that's terrible. That's primal. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah. That is I was like thinking, marking territory. Yeah. It's horrible. Yeah, so you remember um, we got some beta on a blacktail spot, and uh, there were no real blacktails there when we were hunting Alaska the last time. And you're like, yeah, but I'm pretty sure. And then... Like in the spot where we were kind of anchoring the boat and canoeing in, uh-huh. there's, um, there was some like very much like, yes, somebody has been successful here. It was like bailing twine and a pelvis or something. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> and we're like, yes, this means. Yeah. It's going to mean one thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Nowadays, it's kind of a shame, but nowadays it's those uh, damn latex gloves, man. Ugh. Yeah. People gut something. They put those gloves on because they're like, ew, it's icky. And then they leave the gloves laying. I, I like the latex glove thing as as far as a, a tool because I'm terrible at washing my hands. Way better these days with COVID. Sure. But then I go the opposite way and I'm washing my latex gloves for like, um, for a long time. Like it's yeah, I keep them around, and then I have cooking latex gloves too for like mixing burger and doing stuff like that in the kitchen. And I always wonder if those two yeah, gloves mm-hmm. ever met. The the last bit of follow up on the the ass movement. Guy from Utah, he works in the therapeutic wilderness industry, and he they call them surfies. Um, surfies. Mm-hmm. Um, in his industry, there's a lot of surfies. Because you wind up with kids that are too lazy, scared, uncomfortable to use the group latrine. Mm. They get spooked off the group latrine. And I can tell you that my five-year-old doesn't like the outhouse at our fish shack. And when he, he doesn't, he'd rather go out and dig a cat hole. If you force him to use the, like, the, the, our thing, it's like a classic outhouse with no door. So you're just looking out into the rainforest, which is nice. And then we got a barrel that we cut in half, set the barrel down on the hole. So you got the plywood with the hole cut, right? Then you got a half a barrel cut plastic barrel, half the barrel cut and laid on there, a hole cut in the barrel, and on that is screwed a toilet seat. Nice one. Um. He'll make you sit there with a stick and wrap that barrel till the everlasting last fly comes out of there. <laughs> like he does, he is deathly afraid of sitting on that thing with flies in there. So you'll come up and just beat that barrel to get all the flies out. And then he'll sit on it. So I know what he's talking about. Like some kids don't want to, they don't like group latrines. So he'll say they'll go out, they'll sneak off and go lay a surfy. Then you got to go out and find them all <laughs> and round them up. And he says that night, they call it, when someone does this that night, they're called a night panther. <laughs> he says, he says when it's real cold and you just get up out of your bag or whatever, sleeping bag, and you go out and you do lay a night panther, he'll actually put a stick into it. Oh, like a little flag. No, a handle. Because it freezes <laughs> overnight. Like a popsicle stick. Yes, it, you put a stick into it. To not only does it mark its lo- not only does it mark its location, freezes at night. You go over and just grab the stick, and then you can haul it over and get yourself a good place to put it. That's pretty smart. Yeah, poop pops. Yeah, it's called poop pops. He signs off by saying, "Don't let the na- don't let the night panthers bite." 
No. Mm. Enough of that. <laughs> what uh, What now about latex gloves? I didn't mean to be down on them. I wear them. I had some on the other day because we were butchering caribou and the and the, the, the gnats are so un, just like you can't even. Like backs of your hands. They you like the backs of your hands. You can't right? even, like you could be like, oh, you know, there's no thing you could say to describe the gnats. There's no like clouds. Like there's no just, I know, it's just horrible. Ugh. And I put latex gloves on because they like your knuckles so bad. Yeah. So just for terminology's sake, are we talking about the little biting flies like the white socks? No. Talking about the no No. These are no that you but you can see them. Okay. These are no the size of Skeeters. Ooh. No. I don't know. There's, you know, there's so many like regional names for yeah. black flies, white socks, nah, it, uh, definitely like a slash and lap, diptera. Okay. In this, when you can see it, when you can skylight them, you see them all around your damn head. Mm-hmm. They skylight. They they, they they look like a mosquito. That big. But they bite like a no But they're a slash and lap Ugh. fly family. I don't know. Caribou all around their eyes. I don't even know how they can see. All right. I got you. That sounds miserable. Duh. <laughs> and then you're in the tussocks. Do you know what a tussock yeah. is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the tussocks here got a relief of like 24 inches from the moss to the top of the tussock. And you shoot a caribou and they just they land down in the... So they're like, you're actually working on them subsurface. Right. There's no way to get them out of there. Where you're, If you're standing on a tussock, you're like bending over down to try to get That's to where it lands. Miserable. And it's just wet and hot. Oh, it turns like otherwise a pleasurable experience into just the <laughs> worst. <laughs> like, and it's always such spongy ground when you're in those tussocks. Like you can't get any good purchase. Everything's like, oh my yeah, God, the bugs. I got an interesting caribou-related fact for you. Or it, it, I mean, it'd be um, it's from that Farley Moat book mm-hmm. that old old Dirt gave me. Oh, you mean his like classic Never Cry Wolf? No, no not, the deer, the deer not people. That, the deer people. Yeah. yeah. So you know that guy wrote like twenty four books. I've read a hand. It's so funny. They just like fall in your lap every 10 years or so. That's the way it's been for me anyway. Um, But uh, he's talking about how the Eskimo group that he's living with up uh, in the barren lands, the food that they consume is awful, some gut, and uh, the front shoulders. Awful. Awful. I like well, awful. I know, but I just I didn't know I wanted <laughs> people. To, yeah, I, I yeah. was just saying it that way so people would track what you're saying. Yeah, uh, I you know uh, probably won't surprise you, but I do get beat up over the way I talk and pronounce some, certain things. But I'm sure, yeah, yeah. Um, but you cover tra- you you. Um, I try to you, get the definition. In there. <laughs> but you headed off at the pass by saying like, I probably yeah mess it up. Uh, so they they take the shoulders. For their own personal consumption. Like, and then the hindquarters, like the big hams, are what the dogs get to eat. Hmm. And, um, and it goes as far as to say that, like, the hams aren't going to, to sustain a person in the barrens. Is that right? Yeah. But then, uh, not enough connective tissue and collagen or whatever. Yeah. And they don't like it because it's not chewy. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and 
I mean, neck meat, shoulder meat, slow, slow cook stuff is awesome. But, uh, you know, obviously, uh, um, flat iron steaks are fantastic too when they're cooked right. We had a guy, um, Yanni and I had a Chupic Eskimo. I think I talked, I talked about this before. Tell us that his favorite part, you know, the giant tendon that hooks to the, like the, the thoracic yeah. process. What is it called? Yeah. That, like on a vertebra, the big ass thing that shoots upward. Yeah. The yeah. big fin. But it's not a fin. Right. Is it a process? Or is it a, I knew this at one point in time. There's a name for that. I don't, I, I, it's uh, not, I know bone, exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, on a vertebra, there's like that. It's big, you know, they're like 11, 12 inches long on a bison. Moose have huge ones. Anyways, the tendon that holds the head up. So when you're skinning something, you find that big yellow. He's like, that's good. That's nice and chewy. He's like, I'll say. (laughs) (laughs) I bet it is. I I can't say I've ever got down on that one. Yeah, not talking about things being tender. That's good. Chewy is good. Yeah. All right. Good. That's I, enough for news wrap. I, oh. I, I want to I want to follow up because on this 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 uh, we all, almost went down the latex gloves thing. Oh, I, I genuinely have this question because Cal was talking about using them in the kitchen, and I have used them for butchering animals. I've used them in that context. I get why they fit there, but you're talking about mixing burger, mixing sausage, and I've always just washed my hands really well before I did before and after doing I, that. So I what's think the that thing? Is the extent of it burgers and sausage for me? Um, I mean, washing your hands well is going is going to do it as long as folks cook their food pretty much for any circumstance but my hands are always beat up fairly dirty and then when i'm really in there mixing sausage mm-hmm. especially if you're using like fine ingredients um like i toasted up a bunch of coriander for that sausage i gave you and then and turned that into a powder before i mixed it in there mm-hmm. and you gotta like mix like hell mm-hmm. in order to distribute that stuff uh, especially because I add fat into the sausage too, so it's real tacky. And I can just feel, like, if I didn't wear gloves, I could just feel the hairs on my hands getting sucked off into that sausage uh, and, like, yeah. whatever scabs okay. and shit I have on yeah. So you're that doing it sense. to protect the sausage, not, not your yourself. Hands. Correct. Yeah. And yeah. as we've talked about many, many times, that's the number one thing I give away. Is sausage. Yeah. Like, even though it is very expensive, a giant pain in the ass to make. But, but you know people are going to use it, though. It's self And they know what to do with it. Yeah. yeah. And you don't want your little hairs and fingernails in there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I'll tell you a hot tip. Those same Chupic dudes, they, because, you know, it's like 20 below, 30 below, hunting muskox out there in March. They bring um, wool liners and oversized latex gloves oh to butcher yeah that shit man is nice oh yeah all right Ugh. so good on gloves yeah i don't like I, i'm not i don't like there's something unappetizing to me you know nowadays every food service person even when you're watching like barbecue uh shows like if you're in a place like in the gym and they got the tv on and there's no volume so you never know what's going on but you can kind of track the tv show um and they're doing making barbecue even they wear those giant plastic food service ones. Not mm-hmm. the ones that fit right, but the giant clown hand ones. It's just not appetizing to me. <laughs> no, it's not. I'd rather have your damn hand in there. Well, plus, like, the uh, the uh, environment that's going on between your skin and the glove 
is never an appetizing thing. Yeah, and you like, always know what that's like. Yeah, it's just like it just looks so uh, medical. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you describe it as an environment, yeah, Cal, that really like that, that calls up that wet soupy image. That yeah, and I don't want that getting out there. of there. That's and the whole, the whole, here's the other thing too: is the whole glove thing. Everybody wearing uh, all the food service people wearing gloves now makes it that when I have someone over for dinner and I go to like dress the salad, I like to give it a good hand toss. Oh yeah, right. So now they're sitting there, you know, and maybe it's someone like a work person I don't know that well. I'm hosting an out-of-town guest, and they're sitting there, and I want to do my salad. And I'm like, listen, man, I'm not going to tong this son of a bitch just because you're here. <laughs> I'm going to hand blend it. Are they like, you know what I mean? I feel like that's a litmus test. Are they test. so used to the whole glove deal that then they're like, why are his hands in there like that? Who cares? I don't believe that you care. Well, it occurs to me. I wouldn't be talking about it. Fair. Maybe so it's they- just like... Feel like the special, the salad special because it's got some of uh, Steve's skin flakes. My in My hairs and yeah. skin flakes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I want to. All right, we got to move on to what we're supposed to be talking about. Das Boat season two. Yeah, we're gonna talk about it. <laughs> we so, really did it, guys. We really did it. <laughs> Miles, do do for me, do for me a recap of. Das Boat Season 1. Season 1? Like, tell what it was. What is it? What is it? All right. Uh, For those of you who don't know, we wanted to make a fishing show that didn't feel like every other fishing show. And we we all have this love for old boats, particularly old aluminum boats. Like, most of the folks I know, I certainly did. I think most people in this room got their starts fishing in old, relatively crappy aluminum boats. But that represented... Once upon a time was called... A boat. A boat. Exactly. <laughs> it was just a boat. But that little boat represented... Dave has a boat. You'd be like, oh, I can imagine. I'm, I'm calling up Dave. Because <laughs> like, I don't have I a can boat. imagine what it looks like. Yeah. But he, we didn't care if they were nice. Like, that that boat was your passage off the shore. And as a young kid angler, like, that was a huge jump forward. So we decided to make a fishing show that featured an old, relatively crappy aluminum boat. And we went and legitimately, this was there was no artifice to this. We bought one of the worst aluminum boats we could find, sight unseen off of Craigslist from a very interesting dude named Tony in Central Texas. And uh, and then we took that boat and we sent it around the southeast with different anglers to different fisheries. And we gave them each a day to try and do some kind of modification on that boat to make it better for the fishing they wanted to do. And then they had to try and figure it out. Fixed and, it up like the Dickens. Yeah. I mean, some better than others. They weren't all entirely successful because I mean we really, you had you had a day, yeah. But it went from uh, went from having like kind of like a, a a barely running motor. <laughs> oh, that was effectively inoperable. It's night and day. Yeah. That boat is sweet now. Yeah. I mean, from all the things we did, from from reinforcing the transom, putting on a new motor, building out the casting deck, which which Cal did a fantastic job on. We we put a polling platform on there. We uh. We got some electronics on there. Oliver put a very nice trolling motor on that thing. Uh, Honda four-stroke. Yeah. Got a Honda four-stroke on there that ran beautifully. And I then, knew that was a successful repower when I can look down at the hole and watch it waving like a waterbed on plane. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, we're boogieing. <laughs> yep. Oh. <laughs> and by the end, 
we actually had that thing tricked out with a center console and like it's it's a sweet boat now. And then we auctioned it off. Yeah. To raise money for Cal's special project. Well, I I I I uh helped select the special project, but it is Well, it is you you are you brought it to project. our attention. Yes. Yeah. A, a special yes. land access project, Shiloh Pond in Maine. Yeah. That Cal identified as needing a boost to get across the finish line, basically purchasing a um Purchasing a, a, a piece of land that has historically been open to access, but it was never um, never made official long term. Yeah, now, it was a private chunk that provided access to whoever wanted to go out there. And there was a group that wanted to purchase it outright, make it forever public yep. hunting and fishing location. So we sold the damn boat. Yes. And what, what was the final? I think it was fourteen grand. I felt like that's like a break-even amount. For the boat. Oh, yeah. Got a steal. Yeah. I now know nothing against the guy that bought it. I now no, know he's, that he's a real nice guy. Should have raffled it. Yeah. But the problem with the raffle, like we looked at that, the the legal issues of trying to hold a raffle across all the different states were were daunting. Yeah. But I now have reason to believe. I now have fact based info that suggest that suggests for something like that you will do four X. Oh, I believe it. On a raffle. I believe it. And, because and I'm me and Cal are involved in one right now. Cal, do you know where that's sitting right now? I, I don't think we should I'm give gonna show away you how with the my sausage fingers. is made. I'm going to show you with my fingers. <laughs> no. Yes, that's where that sits right now. Man, should no. auction that boat. I, we, I, <laughs> no, raffle. 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 We did raffle. auction. Raffle the boat. No, man, I, I wish we could have done And I would have liked the fact that it would have given everybody an equal chance and not just the highest bidder got it. Not no, Nothing against who got it, and I'm very happy about oh, where I, the boat's I, going. I, 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 I'll, I'll give him a back rub. But I, I like the egalitarian nature mm-hmm. of the raffle. Good old raffle. Yeah. So here's so season two. That, that was all based... How do you define where season one was based? I mean, we're Texas. Calling it, we're calling it the Southeast, but that's not entirely right. It was it was Texas, Florida, and Georgia. Yeah, Southish, yeah, Southeastish, yeah. Not and, you know. and 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 picking our spots based on you know interesting people, interesting fisheries, and interesting stories. We, we really wanted to focus on not just you know the same old spots everybody's been. We had some of those and some of the, the species that you're expecting, but we also wanted to like get something that had some more some more layers of interest to it other than like, hey, we went and caught a fish. Yeah. Because you can find that on any fishing show. Season two takes place in upper Midwest Great Lakes. Yes, it does. You could say. Yeah. The boat, so the boat's a very, uh, it's personal to me because I, I kind of explained the story in the show, but uh, I'll talk about this boat a little bit. My, my old man was born in uh, the south side of Chicago in Little Italy. And he got older and got into hunting and fishing and stuff by mostly by going off to fight in the war. And then always dreamed of going up and like getting a place in the wilderness, which happened to be like, you know, four hours north in Michigan, <laughs> right? Like it's all relative. And at the time it was, you know, it was a kind of a wildy sort of place. And so before I was born, my mom and my old man go up to, um, look at this house that I was born in. My mom still lives there today. And the way my old man tells it, he, he he goes to look at the house, but there's no one there. So he looks around at the house, and there's a happens. And no one's living in the house. There's a summer cottage, 
and there's a boat out front. And he takes the boat out in the lake, and as he tells it, <laughs> as he tells it, he caught a five pound largemouth, which is a monster for that well, part of the country. Here's that's the thing. We used to always tell the story, but now I'm like, how could it be that the only five pound bass <laughs> ever, after thousands of days, thousands of days of fishing that lake, spring, summer, fall, winter, everybody we knew, okay, my mom's been in that house the 46 years I've been alive. How come that was the biggest bass that ever got caught? <laughs> Like, why would it be that, 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 you know, what happened to him? <laughs> Peaked early. <laughs> so I don't know. I think it was a nice bass. I think he got like a 20 inch bass and it served, seemed like a five pounder. A right? 20 incher could go five yeah. pounds, theoretically. It just, it, if he said four, I'd be like, wow. But anyways, anyways, I don't know. We caught a big, like uh, Oliver, what, um, you know those little length charts, which I know are off? Right. Because we do them on halibut. We, like, do the length weight thing on a halibut, and then we actually just weigh the halibut. Totally. And it's and I've done it with other fish, too, but what's a five-pound bass supposed to be? How many inches? 24? It really depends on their build. Yeah, I know, but just and give time me a of year, I think the largemouth bass are probably the worst fish to try to plug in any of those oh, formulas. Really? Because there's so many variables. Because their fitness varies. Absolutely. Like, what they're eating varies in density of weight like a fish from clear lake california is probably like twice as heavy from the mercury content in the water alone <laughs> but like they really like you'll pick a fish and be like oh man that's a nice three pounder and put on a scale and it's almost five you're like what the like that doesn't compute huh. so when they i see all these tapes and measuring devices with a formula like oh a 20 inch or is a five pounder maybe got you right maybe yeah and Chasing big bass across the country now, a 25-inch, really well-built largemouth in California is going to go 9, 10 pounds. No, really? Yeah, because it's all girth. Like, they got the fat deposits on the top they of got their shoulders. Head, their like tails are yeah. thick. Like, <laughs> they're literally maxed out. And then I go to Texas and hammer these giant fish with these monster heads, but their bodies are like wind socks. So I've got like a 27-inch like huge bass, like looking at it side profile wise and you hang it on a scale and it's like seven and a half pounds. What the, I feel robbed. <laughs> Cause all you <laughs> bass guys, now I'm starting to want to go back and start weighing all these damn bass. You kind of have to. Yeah. That's, that's the yeah. unfortunate thing. Either but way, it, I don't think he caught a five pound bass. <laughs> <laughs> if you've learned anything after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, it's this. There's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, no way, can't be true. But there isn't a catch. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, 
Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Make life insurance part of your financial planning this year. Start shopping now with Policy Genius to find the right policy to protect your family. Getting life insurance today means you'll have peace of mind so that if something were to happen to you, your family can cover expenses while getting back on their feet. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Hey, I'm kind of an afternoon hydrator. Like, you know, I wake up in the morning and drink a bunch of coffee. Then later in the day, I'm like, man, I got to hydrate. And then uh, I'll see some liquid IV and then I'll drink a whole bunch because I like it a lot. It helps me stay hydrated because it motivates me to do it. Now, it doesn't matter if you like hydrate to live or live to hydrate. Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drinks and no artificial sweeteners plus zero sugar in the sugar-free version. However you hydrate, grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use our code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Superior Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. I spend a lot of time outside, and I spend a lot of time hydrating with Liquid IV because, like I said, I love it, and it makes me drink like I know I should. It makes me feel great. Check it out, liquidiv.com. Well, working working on our uh, uh, walleye spot, trying to figure that stuff out, that big one that I caught in the spring, yeah, I, I taped that very accurately, Yeah, weighed it, with you know with my scale that i weigh everything with so that's kind of my baseline i'm sure you could poke holes in whether or not that's accurate and then i caught one that was three and a half inches shorter here a week ago and there's only um uh just shy of a pound difference between that 27 and a half inch fish and a 24 inch fish gotcha and i thought well that kind of seems not quite right has to do with how fat he is, yeah. how built out. So uh, the old man catches his bass, and then in, 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 in the tell, you know, every story becomes like an epiphany story over time. He has an epiphany and buys the house that I was born in. Down the beach is another World War II veteran, kind of, named John Gary. And I say kind of only because he got stationed in Canada during mm-hmm. World War II. And all he did was shoot deer, it sounds like. <laughs> it's like he spent World War II <laughs> shooting deer. Um, in Canada. And uh, he had this boat that was 
built, he had a StarCraft Bassmaster, olive green, built in 1973. So the year before I was born. And John Gary was like, all the kids around the lake, the fish, it was like, John Gary was like the fishing mentor. He had a net to catch beach minnows, sand minnows. He had a beach sand that he hung up. You could go down there and get minnows with John. He'd like rig your rod up. He'd untangle your shit. He, um, he kept lists of all the books he read. He read a lot of like John Grishamy type stuff. He'd keep a list of, he got two lists, a list of all the books he read and then all the days he fished. And he would log on a minimum 170, but usually over 200 days a year. A lot of people like to say they do that, but not many people actually do that. He'd fish 200 days a year. It's a lot of time on the water. He would fish so reliably that when I was trapping snapping turtles, I could go by his house at 11 and get fish heads. It was like, he, he just knew that he fished and he knew that he had fish heads. And he would, he just, he, he lived with his wife and then she passed away. And he would fish more than he could eat. Like he'd cook large mouths. Like he'd, he'd flay large mouths and cook them scales down on a grill. He'd soak them in milk and cook them scales down on the grill. Kind of like redfish style? Yeah, they'd go out and fish perch and bluegill, him and these old guys. And he hung out with a lot of old drinkers. He was a big drinker too. Um, and they'd sell the flays. Because there was a fish market in our county, and they would illegally sell any fish that the fish market owner could plausibly legally have. And since there was like perch fisheries in Canada and aquaculture facilities that did bluegill, he could be like, he could have cover for that. So they would a lot of times sell their fish to the fish guy. And man, they just fished their asses off. Uh, and he always had this boat, and he had it on a haul out. And we used to actually go, he had, a, you know, those cranker things, you lift your boat out of the water. Yeah. And he had his own boat ramp, the only private boat ramp on the lake he had. The first mink I ever caught, I caught, it was muskrats that built a den under the boat ramp, and I caught my first mink out of that. And anyhow, just a very, like, influential figure growing up. And that's whose boat it was. Okay. He died... And he got sick. He was almost dead. Anyhow, we bought his boat. And it went to live in my mom's pole barn. And sat in my mom's pole barn for, I don't know, 13, 14 years. She started to get a little nervous because she had been registering it the whole time. Because she didn't think, she thought it was bad to have an unregistered boat in your barn. <laughs> <laughs> and she eventually wanted that boat out of there. And it was right at the time. And I was like, aha, we'll use it for season two. So that's the boat. How old were you when you started fishing out of that? Oh, you know, I was always around. Like, we used to catch, more than we fished in it, we would catch bullheads it was out like of the bricks, out, out of the bricks that the boat haul out sat on. But, like, it was just all, the boat was always there. Like, you know, you'd go out with John in the boat. He'd show you how to catch crappies. It was just around. It was always around. Rad. And that's the boat. That's such a great story. Yeah. I wonder, love wonderful this guy. boat, by the way. Yeah. It's, it's fun. Huge upgrade. Yeah, oh, you think so? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Can I tell you one last tidbit about John Gary? He would cut up oranges and freeze them, the wedges. So then when he came home from fishing and poured a glass of vodka, he would then fill it full Hot of tip. frozen orange wedges. Hot tip. Hmm. That's a Big. life hack right yeah, there. Those guys, yeah. those guys drank a lot, man. <laughs> okay. He called his... his uh, his, he had his fish shack and stuff on the beach, and he called it the Redneck Riviera. <laughs> <laughs>
because they'd sit out there and finish getting drunk. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> finish getting drunk after fishing. Redneck Riviera. That's beautiful. That boat was, I mean, you guys will all see it when you watch the show, but that boat was was a whole lot of fun to work on and to fish out of and just see it. And here's what I think compared to the, the one before. It's smaller, which there was a little tighter quarters. Real small. It's narrow. a real small boat. Yeah. Like it's narrow and short. It's it's real tight quarters, but I feel like Is it that- 14? 14 feet, yeah. 14 feet and, and also like, again, extra narrow. I didn't measure the- like gunnel to gunnel beam, but it, there's not much there. And, but I feel like that forced people to be a little bit more efficient in how they set it up when they fished out of it. Like the other one, there was enough space that you could just kind of blow up and there was just shit everywhere. This year, it seemed like everyone was like, wait a minute, we don't have any space. So they had to be more thoughtful and they had to plan it out better. And it just seemed to work out. Like the, the, the interactions with the boat were good. Absolutely great season one, but I feel like they were in better season two. Like everybody who left, I was, man, I love this boat. I'd, I'd want to fish out of this boat. I think a great takeaway from being on both seasons and seeing the differences in those two platforms is I had the perspective of a lesser craft that made me appreciate just a little bit of an upgrade as far as that new platform represented. It's like, oh, I can, it was hard enough last season. This, my job just became a little bit easier. And I think that's the opportunity with this whole like DOS boat like theme and concept is to show that there's learning opportunities from fishing in a piece of shit. Because mm-hmm. when you get into something that's not, then you don't have any excuses anymore. It's no, like, yeah, oh, I dude, it. I, made, yeah. I made do with crap. Like my first boat was a $200 or $250 purchase off Craigslist up in Big Bear covered in pine needles. I don't know how I got that trailer home down at, uh, to, to the LA area. But like that feeling of getting off the bank was a real thing. Now that whole new world has opened up to me. And I learned how to fish out of a piece of crap with just a trolling motor getting blown all over these lakes when the wind picks up, this, that, and a third. So when I'm in a bass boat, even if it's like a small 18, 19 footer, old, like a 1982 Ranger or something, I know what it's like to fish out of a legit piece of crap. So it doesn't phase me anymore. Yeah, yeah, I got you. And it's just like, you're complaining about the wind? Like, dude, this thing is <laughs> like an aircraft carrier. <laughs> so I, I think people that jump straight into nice platforms and vessels and boats, like straight out of high school or whatever, like good on them, but I feel like they're getting cheated because they don't know what it's like to embrace this It's hard to get intimate suck. with it. Yeah. Right. It's hard to appreciate what you end up having. That's right. Or even know, like learn how to. I feel like the learn all the learning I did about how to get one of those old boats to be an effective fishing tool is super useful now, even in a nicer boat. Cause I, I, I can think about like, all right, how do I, how can I set this up to be more efficient? How, what changes can I make? What can I easily do? Even though it's already great compared to what I'm used to, you've had to figure all that out in the past. And I think, I think most people who fish seriously have come through that and it's like, yeah, all right, I know how to kit out this boat. I know the, the things I need to do. And that's part of the satisfaction and the fun. Yeah. Especially to rig it out for many, many different fisheries. Yeah. Not just your main home stretch. I'm going to be buying some uh, raffle tickets for Dose Boat. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, man. There's something about that thing because it's you can. Be, I don't know. If, that might be too sad. It might be too, like, heartbreaking for me to see it go. For a grown adult, like, running the tiller back there, if you throw your weight around, like, you can turn, you can help turn the boat by, by leaning. Yes. Yeah. Well, that boat flies. And so yeah. there's something about yeah. that where I was like, God, maybe this is the design 
to put a jet on this thing. Oh. And it could be maybe like a fort pack, get some big water on it, and then also run up the river too. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. That boat uh, goes 30 miles an hour. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it had never, it had never in its life gone 30 miles an hour. <laughs> oh, it feels like you're going so fast, man. I love that thing. It's yeah. so fun. So Joe Cermelli's here. He's here but not here. He's virtually right. here. Yeah, I was going to say, man, as a, as a DOS boat rookie, because I was not around for season one, um, having watched the first one, I, I was very nervous going into our mission with the new boat. But I got to say, uh, me and Tim Lanware, who we fished, in, uh, fished with in my episode, both walked away from that going, this boat is freaking awesome. You like it? I personally would like to have that boat. And I uh, saw one here about a month ago. I'd never seen that boat in my life, that, that exact same boat. Starcraft Bassmaster. And there's a river in North Jersey, kind of in like a shady part of... of the area here that we pike fishing and there's these old shacks and these weird houses back there it's kind of like the hills have eyes and people just pile old pontoon boats and jet skis back there and we're coming around the corner sure enough man same exact boat only with a center console had the wheel wheel in the center oh really huh yep mm-hmm. tell people about the the fishery you went and checked out for for season two yeah the old so spot burn and i'll tell yeah. you this i want you to know now i fished for smallmouth in that river, including right below the secret dam. Okay. Did so like when it? I go turn it up there, don't act like that I stole it from some <laughs> stupid show. This is a classic fishing conversation <laughs> yes, right there. You know? I've been there for years. <laughs> Let me establish my credentials here. Yeah. I know where you're at. I've been up there forever. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, so we uh, we fished the uh, Menominee River in northern Wisconsin on the border with, the, uh, with Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And... Um, I feel like we got off really lucky because on fabrication day, it's like, well, we have to float this thing down a very shallow, rocky river. So fabricating meant just get everything the hell off of it. Just strip it down to absolute bare bones. And um, Miles, you were talking about how it gets narrow in the front. Like it's got a weird beam and that weird sort of choke point in the front of this boat. Yeah. We didn't even have to bolt the Yeti down, man. Just just shoved that thing right in there. It locked into place. And that was our, our rower's seat. Um, but we, we went into it, we went into it thinking like, there's no way this is going to work. And within a couple miles, it was, it was cumbersome to row that thing. It didn't respond at all. You couldn't like, you know, crab crawl it and crab walk it, but, um, like no trouble. And for just two guys, it was awesome to fish out of. We had like all the room in the world. It was, it was, it was killer. And you guys caught some biggins. We did. And it was, it was slow by the standards of the dudes we were fishing with. Um, but I mean, they were some of the biggest smallmouth I've ever caught on the fly. And it's in this super shallow, clear water and, uh, they call them passive feeders. So you think of these smallmouth as being aggressive all the time and they throw basically big dry flies, foam Chernobyl ant type things they call wigglers. And they're like, now you just keep putting it out there and it'll get over top of one. And it's just such an easy meal, dragonfly, whatever he thinks it is that these, these Big fish on the bottom will just say, oh, I can't pass that up. And they just come up and just nip it. So you're watching these 20-inch plus-inch fish coming up and just sipping these tiny flies. It was it was some of the most badass smallmouth fishing I've ever done. A lot now, of fun. Why, what makes it a – what's that term passive feeder? I mean, how passive are you? You went up and ate something off the surface. Well, in other words, like they're just kind of not in kill mode. They're not chasing bait around. They're gotcha. not particularly in an ambush spot. Um you know, and they're just kind of laying there lazy, 
But uh, there's so many dragonflies and damsels and stuff out there that it's like you're laying in bed and someone comes by with an appetizer tray. Yeah, like you and just grab like, ah, one because you it's know, yeah, sure. It's exactly the way I'd I'll put take it. a it's just, triangle yeah, piece of bread, blanket, triangle shaped whatever, piece yeah. of toast with some meat on <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same deal. And uh, it's been cool because I, I learned a lot, and I've since done that with fish here, caught fish that way out here. So. So, Joe, real quick, are, were you imparting any motion to those to those flies, or were you just straight drifting them? No, you you move them, but but barely. And uh, you know, it, it kind of translates over to poppers too, because a lot of guys throw foam and, mm-hmm. and wood poppers. Uh, like the biggest thing when you slap down one of these foam um, wigglers or a popper, those guys are like, the slap is pop number one. So people like to lay that stuff out and just pop, pop, pop and make it move right away. It's like, no, the slap is pop one. So with these wiggly bugs, you'd slap it down and let it go, and they would just say, just move it barely. So they have these long rubber legs coming off the sides, and you would just twitch the line. I mean, move the rod tip an inch, two inches, just to make it move forward and just let those legs flex. And that's all you would do till your drift ran out, pick it up and put it down again, down all these soft banks. Now, when you guys were out there fishing um – you mentioned how you kind of credit them with these are dudes that all went out, you know, grew up in the Midwest, went out west to be trout guides and shit. And they learned about drift boats and throwing flies and whatnot. And then they came back to their homeland and took that technology to start catching big ass bass out of the lake or out of the river. Do you buy mm-hmm. that? Do you think that they really like invented that fishery or that method? Um, I wouldn't say they invented it, uh, and I don't know if they would say they necessarily invented it either, but I think, uh, you know, so many people are used to fishing smallmouth in really big rivers or deep lakes that, um, it's a fairly unique situation having these giant fish in a fairly small river that reads a lot more like a trout stream. So I think because of that situation, they probably perfected it. They were just in the perfect place where they had that sort of experimental grounds to play with big dry flies, whereas guys in Pennsylvania or Michigan or whatever, maybe they were just working hair bugs and poppers like they have been forever. Um, So I think just the the whole scenario let those dudes really perfect that. And in fairness, it's not to say they're the only ones that do that. There are some very good guys in Michigan, uh, smallmouth guides. They they do the same thing, but they've honed this sort of very finessey, much more trout-like presentation than than the aggressive stuff most people think you need for smallmouth. Do you know that there's an East Coast dude? He's got a book like Fishing River Smallmouth and Fishing Stream Smallmouth. I got his books. I probably have it here too. I'm telling you, man, I have never in my life learned something from a fishing book, but he's got those maps. <laughs> Listen. Well, that, that, you have a my book, book, so thanks for that. No, I learned stuff from your fishing book. No, I don't mean like that. No, I have Joe's surf and I, no, I, okay, that was the wrong thing to say. I have, Joe's, I have Joe's surf fishing book. I don't mean that. I've learned a lot about, like, rigs and, okay, but hear me out. Hear me out. What I mean is, you know when people draw a map, and it's like a stair, it's like, here's a river, and it shows, like, fish here, fish here, fish here, uh-huh. yeah. right? Now, I... In greater detail, I would usually be like somewhat skeptical of that illustration. Okay, 
like I, I just wouldn't it wouldn't I wouldn't be like oh okay and then I'd go to a river and be like hey this is just like in the book X and then cast the there you know what I mean <laughs> yeah but he was like because I used to fish the Delaware over your way for smallmouth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. big nice smallmouth mm-hmm. and I looking at his book and where he put his X's all the time I was like I'm canoeing past shitloads of according to this guy I'm canoeing past shitloads of smallmouth and I started casting to where he would put his X's behind rocks Mm -hmm. and catching bass that I would have never known where they were there because I would be like, Oh, you go to the big deep bends. Yeah. You know, and that's of course, you know, any idiot would know. And then you'd pat, then you'd go down two more miles of river, not do anything because you're waiting for like the next thing. And meanwhile, every one of those rocks, not every one of them, but like smallmouth out of crazy spots, man. Well, smallmouth and child. I love your book. (laughs) (laughs) actually it's okay because like looking back i feel like i wrote that when i was 12 it was so long but i bought that book not knowing you were i bought the book not knowing you or who you were i yeah it was served up to me when i was trying to figure out surf casting yeah well it's a good that's cool no that's (laughs) but to get back to what you're saying about the 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 x's on the map um I mean, I think people get pigeonholed into that with a lot of stuff, smallmouth and trout. And what we were doing in Wisconsin plays right into that. Yeah, your average your average dude, he's going to go for the deep bend, the slower bends, the deep hole, the honey hole. When um, if you really know what you're doing and learn from guys like I fished with in Wisconsin, it doesn't make sense for a 20-inch smallmouth to be where we were catching them. But – you're dealing with guys who understand why, and that's why it was so eye-opening. They probably see that a lot it. too. Yeah, well, you, <laughs> they may have been. I see that a lot too with trout, like nighttime mouse fishing for trout. They are not uh, where where you catch them at night is typically not where you catch them during the day. They move, and uh, you know everybody goes for the community hole and don't realize how much fish move around on a daily basis. All right, Kevin and Oliver, you guys went – help explain this to me, man. Kevin, you grew up in musky country, but you never fished musky. <laughs> no, never did because it seems like everybody always fished them in the fall and I was always hunting. You called um, a big bull in the other night, didn't you? Sure did. Anyhow. Sure. You grew up – We'll get to that maybe later. Um, never yeah, fished musky. Oliver got to... Did you guys have tiger no, muskies? Did. Tiger muskies? Yeah, I think – Those hybrids? You know what yeah, I'm there's, oh, there's yeah. a bunch yeah. of those like Midwestern lakes and especially in the, like near the twin cities too. Like there's all these fisheries that everybody was fishing. I just never got into it when I was a little kid. Yeah. So it was cool. It was cool to go see that happen, you know, with all because it's like a new thing. It, it's like a new thing yeah. where everybody's all fired up about like in my grandpa's day, they fished musky by, did I tell you this? They used to uh, harness rig chipmunks. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. <laughs> that's awesome. They that's would, awesome. they would harness rig a chipmunk. And row it out into the middle of the lake and put it on a little uh, piece of wood, <laughs> and it wouldn't jump. It wouldn't want to jump off. Of course not. I'm just telling you, man. Th- I didn't do this, <laughs> <laughs> and it wouldn't want to jump off. You then go to the beach and wait a while, and then pull the chipmunk off the board, and that's how they wow. would fish musky. One of the ways they would fish musky, and just watch it. Kind of surface swim its way and wait for something to blow up and on it. Wait for something to grab it. Then would you rotate wow. that out with the fresh one if you made it back to shore? I don't know, but I know that give he, him a little breather. <laughs> you've earned your freedom. <laughs> My grandpa would also. Um, they would they would do a lot of things that even the unnerved even me 
which is they would uh, they would talk about that when you find a big largemouth on its bed, what you do is you go dig around under logs until you find a salamander. Because everybody knows if you hook a salamander and drop it onto the bed, it'll eat the salamander. And they would take little frogs and hook them and have those be swimming around. A lot of just stuff that wouldn't fly. <laughs> that wouldn't fly. Well, you're talking today. about about <laughs> musky fishing becoming popular and cool now. And I think, you know, something we didn't really have time to cover on in that episode as much as I would have wanted to is how much that has to do with the fact that musky populations have made a significant rebound. Well, because they're dumping in all lifetime. the lakes. Well, they're dumping them all the lakes. Is one, I think I, I, it's hard to point to one factor. No, it's because they're dumping them into all the lakes, man. I, I would I would say that and that they got is like part of it. Strains like, oh, this lake's got the the Ballyhoo strain or whatever, you know, and it's <laughs> yeah, like everybody's excited about strain. it. Yes, it's it's like the Leech it's, Lake strain is a big one. Yeah, the Great Lake strain, and then the one from that river right up. In that same area, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of that river strain that, that's a big one that, like, grows faster but doesn't get as big. But anyway, you're right. Where are there's the polka a, dot ones from, Miles? Aren't there polka dot muskies out there, too? Those are those Great Lakes strains, yeah. I believe. Those are the, okay. So, yep. like, those ones you see from St. Clair have a lot of those, like, heavy polka dot patterns on and them. And they, they, the, the, the states are buying them and dumping them into the lakes. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. But you got Oliver, those are giants, right? Oh, they get big. And yeah. you got all into yeah. this, Oliver. I did. And... I come at it with a completely different perspective because I was pretty much from LA my whole life and we don't have any muskies or Essox species anywhere near us. So as a young no angler, northies. nothing. No. no, there's one lake, I think it's called Lake Davis in Northern California that somehow Northern Pike got into and like, it was like a big deal. They, they pretty much poisoned the lake to try to start over. Uh, they're still there. But there's just like this weird thing about them. But we don't have any exposure to them except through the content, like TV shows, magazines, watching an in fisherman TV show as a young kid on a Saturday morning. Did you grow up like did you grow up sitting around LA watching fishing shows? Yeah, man. Really? Yeah. Tell your story. <laughs> I heard it yesterday. It's great. Yeah, my story is a little different than most. And just to give you a little context of who I was, uh, I've never met my father. So watching all this content of like this very heavily father, son, uncle, son, some type of uh, paternal figure and young child uh, as an entry point into fishing was not me. And I just happened to randomly stumble upon it. And we talk about it in episode four of season one as well of how I got started in fishing, but it was just kind of random. I was a 10 year old kid on a family picnic at a regional park just outside of L.A. Uh, if you guys are fans of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, um, it's <laughs> Pudding Stone Lake on the other side of the freeway from San Dimas High School. <laughs> All right. Spot burn. Yeah, yeah. Good luck with that one, man. That's, that, that's a place that has always been challenging. And we were there on a busy weekend. It might have been an Easter weekend. It was a spring. Uh, there's frogs in the, in the reeds and stuff, so I was being a 10-year-old, catching things, and came across a, a pile of discarded fishing line. And back then, I guess littering must have been a problem because I remember seeing signs of like, hey, don't throw fishing trash on the shoreline because <laughs> it was there. And I went through it, and I found a couple of those like eagle claw snelled hooks kind of like sure, in that man, mix yeah. and untangled probably three to four feet of it. And, you know, the only 
exposure I had to fishing as a suburban, like, L.A. County kid was what I saw on TV, right? Whether it was, like, Yogi Bear, like, cartoon fishing or, you know, some kind <laughs> of reference. Yeah, yeah, like, some kind of reference in some TV show, like, Family Matters and Urkel and them going through the ice. That's why I don't want to ever go by ice fishing because <laughs> I was traumatized as a young kid because of that show. Um, but I didn't know what I was doing, but I had enough sense to, like, take that three to four feet of untangled line, wrap it around the end of a stick, and I knew I could find earthworms under rocks. So I went to the little creek that fed down into the southeast shoreline. Sure enough, found some earthworms, throw in my little party cup, and walk my little happy 10-year-old ass to the to fishing pier where people were fishing. And I had my little entourage of cousins with me and pin a, a worm on that hook and just threw it over the end of the dock there. Drop shot. No, actually, no weights. <laughs> Fly line is what we call it on, on the West Coast. So it's literally just your line, a hook, and your bait. And uh, my, my cousins got bored after five or ten minutes, and like, oh, we're going back. I'm like, whatever, I'm just going to hang out here. And just kind of started, like, dozing off into, you know, to me, the wilderness, right? <laughs> I'm at like, this lake, and and before you know it, I, could, I feel that telltale, like, dump, dump, dump. And in that moment... I, I went to just react and I tried to like pull out whatever this creature was and that shitty line broke. <laughs> <laughs> and it was probably a bluegill or red or sunfish, most likely. And But in that moment, especially since I didn't capture it, I was just totally like just fascinated about like what the hell just happened. Like I need to know. Like that sense of mystery really drove me to want to come back to try to successfully catch whatever that was. Mm-hmm. And I spent that whole week researching every fishing publication I could in the West Covino Public Library because my, my mom would take me to the library every day after school and I would just just read. Like Dewey Decimal System and all. Like it was <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because like you guys are very entrenched in the fly fishing side of things. And a lot of that stuff that was available to me and even outside of just LA was fly fishing stuff. Hmm. So like terms like match the hatch and like reading water, like even though I didn't really have ways to apply it, like those are really like prominent in my, like just my arc yeah. as a fisherman. So I went back out there, flooded my grandma's garden because I knew like if you flood the dirt, worms are going to come out and she was pissed. <laughs> but I flooded it, got a whole coffee can full of worms because I saw, I saw that's what people put worms in. So I was like, oh, we got coffee cans. Let's, let's do this. And went back out there, talked my mom into spending fourteen ninety nine at the Kmart across the street from the library. Uh, got me a, a crappy little uh, Shakespeare spin cast combo with its little tackle box and everything. And I was tying overhand knots because I didn't know how to tie a knot. Like all that stuff I saw in the encyclopedia uh, was too complicated for me to to digest. So literally, a couple of overhand knots, like a little dropper loop, similar to a drop shot, but like a little bit of a leader coming off like a three way yep. swivel, very crude. And spent all day on that pier and didn't have just a chance. Swaying. No. Oh. <laughs> it was it was like Kevin Bluegill fishing. There was just nothing going <laughs> on. No. <laughs> Digs. I'm, just, I'm just kidding, bud. Uh, That's I, what you get for squad casting. <laughs> <laughs> but at the it's end of the season, day, man. man End of the day, sun's falling. And maybe this is why I still love fishing afternoons and evenings more so than mornings, is as that sun was falling, I felt another tick, and I wind in a bullhead. Yeah. 
that right there was like, man, validation. I'm like, damn, that was awesome. I, I did it. And that's led me to sitting here with you guys in Bozeman, Montana. <laughs> so yeah, it's to, to me as a West Coast, like fishing junkie, seeing this like giant freshwater fish with these gnarly teeth and the tactics that these guys in some far off land, which is the Midwest, to me was like, man, that looks so dope. Like, I'll never probably get a chance to go do that. But like, this is fascinating. The Midwest. It was like, it seemed like Marrakesh did that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, couldn't, it couldn't be further from my world. It really couldn't. Like, you know, getting past yeah, yeah. like an hour outside of downtown LA to go fishing was an adventure and uh, like not something that I was fortunate to really experience. So to to see myself actually fishing for a muscalunge didn't really register in my head until it's I- It's a great name. It's way- they It's should, a great name. They should rebrand back to what they used to be. Yeah. Muscalunge. Muscalunge. It's a great name. It's a great- like animal they're amazing and the fact that like kevin grew up like totally like in the one of the meccas of it and didn't partake in it it was mm-hmm. fascinating to me because like i love all styles of fishing and i'll always be a heavy bass fisherman but like i want to catch the apex and in those systems they're the apex like they're they're the top dog and seeing a four to six foot fish engaging with your hunk of artificial chipmunk <laughs> boat side is an exhilarating experience. And so you just started driving out there to go? Yeah, well, I started driving around the country chasing big bass, and I, I started chasing big smallmouth the last four years and got into that, and then I would kind of just randomly encounter muskies while bass fishing. And last year made a really concerted effort to dedicate like two to three months of just chasing a proper muskie and like trying to apply different lure styles and techniques and uh, just trying things that this established musky fishing culture may not have tried. Because I, I saw something in that that culture that reminded me of a lot of the different fisheries in the different regions I've uh, got to like engage with and penetrate. It's like they kind of pigeonhole themselves like Joe was talking about, like in so many ways, like everybody's so afraid of missing out, like that FOMO keeps them from experimenting and stepping outside of the norm. Because they don't want to waste a day. Right, because they know X lure works and Y lure works. So if I try Z, I might have wasted that day. Or that cast. Right. And when you're dealing with a fish of 10,000 casts, that's a high opportunity cost. Have you ever counted up how many casts it takes to catch a muskie? Well... That's skewed too because I also caught one on the first cast of the day once. It's on the YouTube <laughs> So then channel. you're like, dude, now I got to cast 10,000 more times. Right. So like, does that reset? Right. And I've also caught them back to back casts. So, but like on average, I would say like, like 10,000 casts would be optimistic. How, no, That's, this is what I was curious about. Like, how many casts, well, no, how many casts, have you ever like counted up? I have no idea. Like how many casts does a person do? Have you ever, like, calculated it out? Yeah, actually, someone, like, at a trade show in Italy gave me, like, this little, like, <laughs> like cast counting, like, like device for, thing. Yeah. Fitbit for Dude, cast. they have right. smart rods now that will yep. count that for you. Yeah, so, I so tried. You make, when you're musky fishing, because I watched you musky fish, and you have a very polished cast. Thank you. That looks like you've done it a lot 
I'm not saying he'd done it 10,000 times, but he'd done it a lot of times. Well, I saw parallels in the muskie fishing, especially on the gear side, to things I've been doing my whole life, whether that's inshore saltwater fishing in Southern California or throwing a big lar- like lure for a giant largemouth. Like, the only thing I really had to account for on, on the gear side and the technical side is those teeth. So experimenting with leader configurations, materials, connection, like, options... That was my biggest hurdle because I needed to be able to still fish those lures and articulate them in a way to trigger a bite, but not be hindered from like oversized leaders or big barrel swivels to connect my line, like little nuances that were affecting how I can like really maximize that hopeful potential opportunity I get once a day. I want to return to cast numbers though. Man, it's a lot. How many, no, how many can you really hook out in an hour? And it depends on the fishing style because there are times when I'm like burning a bait back. So I'm that, that cast takes a lot less time than if I'm like really taking my time and fishing an area methodically. Like some of my casts can take like five to 10 minutes. Gotcha. If I know a fish lives on a piece of cover, like I will soak a big soft plastic realistic bait down there. And eventually that fish may like engage with it versus if I'm on a new body of water, like Das Boat, like, I need to cover ground looking for an aggressive fish. Why did you guys go to a lake you'd never fished before? I think that's part of the beauty of fishing is diving into the unknown. But if I had, if I was making a thing, I'd want to right. catch a bunch of fish. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's a balance, right? You yeah. can blame that on me, Oliver. It's okay. Okay, cool. Miles <laughs> made me fish there. It's, it's pretty much why we fish those lakes. I probably would have chose different places, but I didn't know. So, like, that that mystery was alluring to me. Yeah, but then he caught one, too. I did catch one. So, yeah. it worked out. Uh, here's my, I don't really have a gripe of muskie. But I, here's the, I just want to tell you what I fear about muskies. I fear that it's not the fish. I don't blame the fish for anything. I fear that the human, the emerging perception of muskies is playing in to the golfification of fishing. Hmm. And that the people who think that it's naughty to eat a fish will become so numerous that that'll become the norm. And in the dystopian future, it'll be that there's just, it's just more like that, that, that natural resources as stuff that you eat will become more fringe. And it'll be that like, well, if, yeah, I, I see why you'd want to go fishing, but how, why would you want to hurt a fish? And so that's like the, in the long game, I fear the golfification of fishing. I can see that. That it'll lose its connection to being a food acquisition tool. Right. Now I will make this observation about the musky community and they remind me so much of like the trophy largemouth community. Mm-hmm. Like those fish are so revered and so valuable and those experiences that they provide us as anglers is that there's like an overprotecting like vibe. Sure. Right? Those guys will hammer you on fish handling and care and this, that, and a third, but it's okay to, for me to stick a seven-aught treble hook in its face. Yeah. Like, where do we draw the line? And I'm if with you. If you really didn't want to hurt it, right? you'd stay home. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think, no, Oliver, I, too, that's what... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, that's what was in the Midwest growing up, that was like the, the old timers thought process, you know, it was like, Oh, I'm not going to go fish those. I can't eat them. You know, when I was 
a young dude, I just remember him talking about muskies as like these ferocious predators who they, they were killing their bluegills, right? So we always fish for food growing up. But then my younger brother, Ian, started fishing for muskies when I was, out, when I was gone already out west. Um, and that, that transition from like, oh, we can fish for these and we can still go catch bluegills and eat sort of is the norm now, I would say. And that's kind of what we, we showed, you know? Yeah, a little bit there. Steve, I understand what you're saying about the, the, the muskies and the attitude about them, but, I mean, you don't think that's been going on long enough now that it's not a concern? I mean, they're not the only one, right? Tarpon, a lot of guys like to fish for them, but they don't eat them. Bonefish, same thing. It hasn't stopped people from doing tarpon one day and mangrove stampers the next, so they had something to take to the restaurant and the Keys to eat. Yeah, here's why I fear it, Joe, if you really want to know. Because even things like, um, it's even emerging with catfish. Where it's becoming like, like a fish that has always been regarded as a blue-collar food fish. Okay? There's even people now where it's like, if you catch a big catfish, it's kind of naughty that you ate it. Right? And yeah. rivers that there's a 15 a day, like it might be a bag limit of 15 channels a day. And then you got like the local catfishers association lobbying to have it be one a day right so there's a there's a drift and when it starts going after things like that um yeah just like uh, you know any little piece of it i'm not worried about but the general sense of the the minute you get people who golfify a fish um even when there's no real like there's no sort of like biology behind it like this river you're talking about, the Menominee River. Like, oh, you know, you can't keep fish out of the Menominee, uh, you know, because you'll destroy the fishery. Uh, fish and game apparently doesn't know that. Yeah. No, you're right, because you can still keep one. So if that was the truth, I guess what you're saying is they would just make the whole thing no kill, which they haven't. Yeah. Like, like who – and so when people start to take – where you have, like, a, a team of biologists out there whose job – and you have a mandate uh, from the state to manage fisheries – in perpetuity, right? They can't run fisheries into the ground. You're not supposed to. It happens, but you're not supposed to. That these people can look and be like, yes, um, we feel that you can catch whatever the hell channels, channel cats a day out of some river. Um, but then you wind up having other outside forces come in. They're like, never mind what you found. We like catching them and letting them go. And our life will get better if the, if the, the hellbillies that come out here to eat catfish weren't able to do that. I would have more fun golfing with these fish. See, I think that probably it's just stems like, I don't, I don't like it, man. I don't like it. I think it probably stems more from what social media and the internet have done to fishing. I think like I look at that with flatheads, like there's a ton of flatheads in the Schuylkill river in Philly, huge culture and internet forums and groups on, on flatheading there. And yeah, nobody ever talks about killing one and eating one there. Because I think that they would rather have them for an Instagram post mm-hmm. than quietly take them home and cook them. Even though, like, personally, I have no I'd make an Instagram post out of cooking them. Right. Well, <laughs> you've built an entire business exactly. around it. That. That's, that's it. That's why we're all here. But, uh, but there is, like, to say, so yes, this, this should make you uh, upset. No, not upset. But there, there leery. A, leery. And leery is fine, too. But there's parts of bodies of water and there's certain times throughout history that that attitude is very appropriate 
and there's times where it's very inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And some of this is based around, well, you got to return those big ones because those are the effective breeding fish. Mm -hmm. Now, certain circumstances, we need all the effective breeding fish doing what they can because that fishery is in trouble and we need those numbers. And there's, there's all these other fascinating factors that I'm learning more and more about every day. Sometimes we just need numbers in order to keep other fish out of the system. And you're going to have to deal with eight inch trout instead of 18 inch trout, because we just need that mass taken up in the river. But there's this other time where it's like, boy, the reason we have a bunch of eight inch trout in here is because nobody's keeping them. And this damn catch and release ethos and folks hooked on dry flies and no bait is what is keeping this river where it's at. And unfortunately, like the really conservation, because it isn't truly about what is best for the fish in this instance, right? It also takes into account recreation Mm -hmm. and economics and uh, the, the social media, uh, what people want and like, um, you know, what people think about their fishery and what needs to happen. Like it takes, there's a big lag between the biological data and what people think and when those two meet, you know what I mean? It's like, like, you mean like when you do surveys, everybody says they would like to catch more bigger fish. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then it's like that deal down on the snake, right? Where Idaho fishing games, like great. What we need to do is kill a lot of rainbows. And everybody's like, eh, we don't really want to do that. It's like, well, you want more cutthroat and bigger fish? We need to kill a lot of rainbows. No, you're still not doing it? Okay, we're going to pay you to do it, and you can keep as many as you want. Oh, you're still not doing it? Okay, well, we're going to pay you to do it. You can keep as many as you want, and then you can give them to us, and we'll give them to a food bank. Oh, you're still not doing it. Okay, well, geez. Well, that's when you got to go to the move that happens now and then is it's illegal to let them go alive. Yeah. 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 And there are fisheries like that. Yeah. Yes. You can't let it go alive. Right. Flaming Gorge right now, mm-hmm. right? Uh, with with if you, burbot. If you catch a burbot, you got to keep it. Yeah. Illegal to let it go. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I want to ask this question. With specifically back to the muskies, right? Yeah. And and we talk about a lot. We talk about how uh, the dollars that are spent on tags and, and license sales go toward things that we believe in and management practices that are important, mm-hmm. right? And so if you want to talk about fishery, let's just let's take Green Bay as an example. There are, in the last 10 years, really five, but let's go back 10 years, that has become known as a deep, one of the places to go for trophy muskies. Like if you want to catch a 50-incher, that's the place you go. In Green Bay. Yes. Okay. And that has led to a, a significant influx of people coming there, buying those licenses, because they want to catch those fish. Guilty. Mm-hmm. And and, I'm, and and that that is bringing in revenue dollars that are going toward management and conservation. If those big fish weren't there, if people didn't want to get their picture taken with that 50-inch fish, you could, I think, there's a clear argument you can make that there would be a loss of revenue toward conservation and management of those fisheries. Sure, I think there's value there. I get the. I, I'm not arguing with the golf. We're, we're, we're tribal. Idea. We're tribal people, man. Yeah. Um, and I uh, associate with and empathize with and uh, feel inclined to look out for the interests of 
a group of people. And there are layers to it. And that the, the, the tightest core is on like the person whose interests I want to advocate on behalf of would be the person who views um, wildlife management as being a combination of maximizing suitable habitat, maximizing wildlife populations in order to allow sustainable use, sustainable extraction. And they're still going to get that picture. It's just the fish is going to be kind of covered in mud and have a dent in its forehead. <laughs> so, <laughs> a little bit of blood on it. <laughs> and so, just like raising kids, you have a child now. Yes. Okay. Any little thing, right? They look at you, kind of roll their eyes, right? You're like, is that in and of itself the end of the world? No, but I noticed it. Mm-hmm. I noticed it. I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of do this. And you're like, is that in and of itself mean that my kid's a derelict? <laughs> no. Did I like it? No. And so when I look like all these little pieces of this, mm-hmm. like the musky thing, mm-hmm. I went out musky. We, we went yeah, out yeah, spent yeah. a night out. So, um, and when we, we used to catch tiger muskies, we'd be bummed out when they weren't legal size. Yeah. So, uh, in and of itself, is this little thing going to like ruin uh, the wild foods world? No. But do I like it? Yeah, I'm a little suspicious of it. I think That's I think all. the suspicion is fair. I'm not I'm not arguing that point. I'm really not. And I've I mean, you talk about the Snake River. I used to cover these stories all the time when I was writing for fly fishing magazines because it was fun to piss off people and talk about that. Like the the beaverhead. I did a whole thing on the beaverhead and how stunted those fish are and how the biologists are begging people. You know, they were trying to talk about making a 75 fish a day limit. <laughs> And I, I, no, seriously. And I, would, they, I would they give a dude a ticket if he had 76? <laughs> but I was like, They dig down fish. to the bottom of the cooler. Damn it. It was an interesting conversation with this biologist because like 75 fish, man, like you can't get people to keep three. What makes you think that going to 75, they're going to, they're going to do it. He's like, cause I'm trying to bring in a different group of anglers. I'm not going to convince these guys to go, who won't take one yeah. to get 75. But if I advertise like, Hey, you can keep 75 fish a day here. I'm going to get a different group of anglers that's coming in and they're going to fill coolers. Yeah, you're going to have some bloody knuckle dude take notice. <laughs> and he'd be like, there must be something going on there that I need to find out about. The, uh, the big hole right next to the beaver head, right? Uh-huh. I was reading um, in the Montana uh, Fishing Game magazine. Well, that, hold that, on, I should clarify, they didn't change it to 75. Oh. That never happened, just so everybody, like, that didn't go through, but that was what they wanted to do. Big hole regulations were 10 pounds of fish plus one per person per day. Plus one. <laughs> plus plus one. <laughs> Not one pound, but plus one fish. Do you do you have any idea like what that was meant to do? I, I don't even know who I could talk to. I, I'll I'll figure that out though because that has obviously stuck with me. Some guy called his representative and said, "Well, I caught ten pounds." Then. I caught a real giant. <laughs> and what's it, it, well, I'm supposed to let it go? And he's like, what we'll do is we'll adjust the regulations to say 10 pounds plus one. Right. And so he's like, great, thanks. Put your food aside at the beginning of the day, and then you can. But if you really get one, you just can't stomach letting go. You, can, <laughs> you still you got, got keep that him one. Too. Yeah. You keep him too.
Man, I've had a Helix sleep mattress for years, and man, that thing is nice. The Helix lineup, just comfortable. It feels good, and you don't get all like, it's not all like hot and sticky in the summertime. It's not cold in the winter. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, the newly released Helix Elite Collection, a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. And your personalized mattress is shipped straight to your door free of charge. Helix knows there's no better way to test out a mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. That's why they offer a 100-night trial and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash eater and use code HELIXPARTNER20. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Meal prepping and thinking about what's for dinner all the time can be a real stressor. Well, using ButcherBox helps relieve that stress. With ButcherBox, you're always prepared with good quality meat in the freezer. It's the ultimate convenience with custom curated boxes shipped right to your door with free shipping, which means fewer trips to the grocery store. It's hard to find the same value at the store because what store can you go to where you're going to get free protein for a whole year alongside your order? Plus, they have a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive member deals, and they make it even easier on you with recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of weeknight meal essentials. Three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, you get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater and use code meat eater to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Hey, everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now, you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER, and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people, 10% off with the code Meat Eater. That's a good deal.
So, uh, you, but you caught a muskie. For the show, yeah. Yeah. The stars aligned. Saw a little window in that morning, and we got one. You know what's hard? One of the hardest things for a cameraman to do? Capture uh, the moment. They always catch you reeling, but they don't catch the hookups. Because right. what are the odds? 10,000 casts? What are the odds that they're, they're low? They're low. I asked for four days minimum for this shoot initially when we first started. How many did they give you? We got three. Yeah. But like, I have to. I just have to jump in and add, just give props because on our shoot, they had a camera guy, this crew, he swore he was on my fly on every single drift the entire time we were there. He's like, if that gets eaten, I will not miss it. Did he hold he up didn't. to did he hold up to the I, I think he got all the eats. Huh. I really do. Man. Yeah. Big shout out to Bryson. Bri- Paul. Brian Gregson is but, who you're going for there. Yeah, and I, and <laughs> I was, go, I was going for Paul Bork on that if, if yep. he's listening because yep. he was on that fly the entire day. Uh, Kevin yeah, Harlander, I got a question yeah. for you, Kevin Harlander. Why is it you that uh, when I was reviewing the cut, the edit, are they messing with you or they make it be that you never even catch a bluegill? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I definitely boated some fish, that's for sure. <laughs> I was just there for the jokes, I think. They make it seem like when you guys switch to bluegill fishing, which is my style of fishing, they make it seem like Oliver is just blowing them up. Yeah, I was trying to make a point with the whole leech slip bobber setup, <laughs> and uh didn't really work out. He's, so trying to, <laughs> he's trying to rep the Midwest to the fullest. Yeah. He stuck with it. Yeah. Did you? Uh, did you not catch a bluegill? <laughs> I no, said I, I put my in my notes. I put like, did he really not catch a bluegill? <laughs> <laughs> so no, I, I caught some bluegills. Good. I think he's talking about one scene. You guys remember that one scene where like we first switched to bluegill and Oliver put on the drop shot. Did the drop shot rig or worm. And it was that first time, Kevin, where like that in that one hole, you oh, re- yeah, you yeah. really did blank. But I think <laughs> 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 it wasn't it wasn't like from there on out you never got another like you got into him, but in that one hole, yeah, it didn't look good for you. Yeah, that's uh Paul said he wasn't gonna make me look bad, but well, I might have to <laughs> give that guy a call. <laughs> Uh, what, um, how happy were you to catch, like, was it, did it strike you as, uh, you know, to catch a muskie out there? Were you like about time or were you thinking, man, we got lucky? Um, I've spent a lot of time fishing them in the last 18 months now. And I knew that catching one on film with all the pressures that come with it, uh, was not going to be easy. But I felt good about our odds. Like I, I put in that time and I, I gained some confidence in that f- that fishing style, and I wasn't surprised by it. No. I, f- I felt like we should have had another chance at a truly big fish, and that didn't come. Can you tell people about the um, the figure eight deal? Yeah. Which is like, what do you want to know about it? It's it's well, it's, just explain to people the strategy of the figure eight. Like, do you only throw a figure eight when you see it? You don't do it every time, so, do you? This is going back to kind of like that lore and like that mysticism that was musky fishing to a California kid, right? Like, oh, the figure eight, like, what is this? And it's this boat side mechanic that accounts for the behavior of these muskies where they'll track your bait all the way to the boat. 
And if you can maintain that fish's focus on your lure, even boat side, you stand a pretty high chance of getting it to still bite your lure. Even so, though he's like basically staring at you. Staring at you. I mean, even like your whole rod is in the water. <laughs> like it's crazy because like that just seems so foreign to so many different fishing cultures. And it's it's very prominent in musky fishing to where like some fisheries like Lake of the Woods, uh, they say like two thirds of your bites actually come boat side. Like you'll suck those fish up from a long cast and you can expect it to actually make it like kill attempt at some point on the, at, at the boat. And for me, that, that was the first time I actually caught one doing it after tens of thousands of repetitions and failed repetitions. And I think part of that was because of where I was doing most of my musky fishing was really high visibility, clear water. Those fish would see us and the boat and spook. Like by the time I went into the first turn versus like Lake of the Woods is much like dirtier water. So they, I just don't think they are as skittish. And I got my first one after watching this 45 inch musky follow my freaking white poodle looking lure like around and around and around and we're all like dude it's still there and on the first uh, the fourth turn it actually got it and it like surprised your rods me. in the water just like cutting circles with your rod right and I'm, and I'm going like high like away from the boat and i'm changing elevations and like trying to pump it on the turns like just trying to get it to trigger and watching this fish just engage with my thing as i'm walking it in like this big circle four times around and when it actually made the the commitment we were all kind of like oh shit it's got it <laughs> like this is a real thing and it's it's a fascinating fishing technique and one that i've actually previously applied with largemouth bass fishing and it's not as like aggressive of like a figure eight and most of the time i'm actually doing like ovals yeah because those bigger fish apparently have a harder time like turning on a dime and uh, have got big predatory, like skittish, like wary, like educated or conditioned fish to make a mistake with inches of line off my rod tip. I did it yesterday uh, on the Yellowstone. Got a brown trout to eat my jerk bait because I was trying to burn it in to make a cast at a snag. And this like 19 inch brown trout just beelines it like fast as hell and boat side. Like I didn't, I was about to go into a figure eight turn because I've just built that into my mechanics. Yep, yep. It didn't even give me a chance. It just snuffed it like right at the end of my rod it tip. Was so I'm like, cool dude, that was sick. But I've actually started incorporating it like on some other fishing like escapades, like Murray cod fishing in Australia, Barramundi. Like it's a it's a underutilized fishing style for all fish. Yeah. But like the musky guys, like you have to make that boat side mechanic at least one revolution especially in like low light or low visibility situations whether the water's dirty or nighttime fishing because you don't know if there's one on it or not and sometimes like you'll suck one in and it'll camp out under the boat and then like on the six cast later or something like it could just oh, he's just hiding under the boat he's been there the whole time potentially <laughs> yeah yeah they do that it, That's pretty wild. so you, you're supposed to do it every time and it it's kind of like that Murphy's Law thing. Every time someone that's super green to musky fishing comes on my boat and I'm trying to like tell them, figure eight every time, at least one revolution. Because that'll give you time to kind of like watch and see if there is one in the area. And everybody gets lazy, man. It's a mental focus thing. Like, and the one time they don't do it, guess what happens? 
It's big old musky. Big old musky was on it. And maybe if you had actually gone into a turn, it could have ate it. But you never gave it that shot. And you just blew your shot for the day, you know, potentially. So it's it's a exercise of like this mental focus and hyper focus. And that's what drew me into it as a fishing like culture. Because that's like right up my alley with like the low engagement I'm expecting and, and living trophy bass fishing. Like I'm trying to catch a fish that most people on average will never see all the time. So I have to maintain this level of hyper-focus. Mm-hmm. And for me, like the musky fishing, I was like, oh, like you're just a dumb bass guy from California. You don't, you're not going to do any good. <laughs> like you're going to throw that thing? No, here, man, throw, this, throw these two things that every other musky fisherman I've ever talked to tell me to throw. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. You're going to go rogue. Yeah, I went rogue. I stuck some good fish and had a lot of fun like learning the process and failing on my own and trying to pick and choose from these hardcore musky guys who I respect so much as a culture, as a, a type of angler. But like at the same time, how do you know that there isn't a better way to catch a musky or a different because way? Because you least? went and talked to everybody at the fly shop, Oliver. They sure. told you what's up. Absolutely. They told you what's to use. Yeah, man. You can you can skip all that stuff. Right. Yeah. I enjoy the process of learning. And, and unfortunately, experience and failure is the best way to learn. Yeah. I, it really is. Until you actually like live it and can have that opportunity to make that adjustment on your next opportunity. Yeah, I think hearing stuff is great, but then making it your own is particularly helpful, man. Totally. Because I think when you're doing something with confidence, you do it differently and do it better. Right. Slightly well, differently mm-hmm. and better for Failing sure. Failing with confidence, right, is, mm. is a huge part of it. And nobody, like the amount of people that have the stomach for failure over and over again is just not a lot of folks like that. They're like, well, I'd, I'd need some success though. We were talking to, uh, we were talking to P- the baseball player, Pete Alonzo. He's talking about, the psychology of baseball players and being a batter. He says, baseball is a game of failure. It's just all failures. He says, if you can um, succeed 10% of the time, you you might be regarded as phenomenal. 90% failure. Yeah. So it's like, you get really used to, it's not like every time you get out to the plate, like, bam, homer, bam, homer, right? You can have a good career. We're calling success a a homer. Because well, I'm doing the math. Like, if you're batting 100, you're not, you're not doing that right. great. I mean, you're better than me, but I can't remember what the hell number he said. But he said, like, three, three, three out of 10. Three, 300 is like a Hall of Fame batting average. Okay. No doubt. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, 30%. So maybe he said you're that. You're amazing. Point being, he's like, it's more typical to fail at bat. Absolutely. Than it is to succeed at bat. I think that applies for anything that's hard to do. Right? Anything that is, like, revered... Uh, it shouldn't be easy because no one would care. Yeah. It'd be like bluegill fishing on <laughs> Dos Boat. Dude, don't be hacking on bluegill fishing. <laughs> you heard me and Kevin's. Hey, man, I love That's bluegill right. fishing. Love it. Now, why was it you guys were incapable of catching the big mouth buffalo? I mean, I, you can't put the you guys. It was it was me. <laughs> well, I thought you and Cal were fishing. Yeah, Cal was smarter than me. He's like, that looks stupid. I'm not going to do that. You go I, ahead. But what were you trying, like, most of them, I mean, people do catch them. Yes. Yeah. Most yeah. of the, they shoot a lot of them with bows. They and shoot listen, a lot in, of them with bows. In the river, like, 
I, there's and certainly like in the more of the moving water mm-hmm. as opposed to like the the stagnant stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not uh, putting anybody down here, but like that that is very doable, very very well within the realm of what people would consider success. Like not that much of a trick, but going out on the the big water with the big old fish. Very doable as well, but that is going to take a lot, a lot of failure to figure out. What were you trying to do? All right. So I feel like I should give a little context on what this fish is because not that people know. No, no, that no. Many everybody, know what it is. They, everybody sees them. They think they're looking at a carp. Right. And and just so everybody knows, big mouth buffalo are not carp. They're not even related to carp. They're the, the world's largest sucker, and they're, they are native fish in North America, and they're incredibly cool. And they used I, to support a commercial fishery. They did. Yeah. I've I've not eaten one. I've heard they're very delicious. We never, grilled never the ribs one. on them. Really? Well, there's uh, guys in Wisconsin take the ribs, clean the fish, mm-hmm. and then they take the ribs, leave it on the bone, brush it with barbecue sauce, and grill it. And then you suck the ribs clean like you're eating pork ribs. Nice. Yeah, it's good. Still a commercial fish in Tennessee. Oh, it is? Yeah. And okay. Can, yeah. Kentucky, and I believe Tennessee. Louisiana as well. Yeah. The last I could find, which wasn't super contemporary, but the last commercial fishing report I found from Louisiana, they were a small percentage of the commercial fish, but they were they still were representative there. But anyhow, uh, we learned about these fish. I think I think you actually turned me on to that Cal. You turned me on to that uh, that study that came out in 2019. Oh, and because I, I can't remember what it was, but I remember it was old fish. Old fish. Uh, oldest ba- known fish in the in the U.S. freshwater fish. Yeah, there was this assumption that they lived like the same length as other sucker species, so 20, 30 years. But no one had ever tested that. They're they're a rough fish. They don't get much attention. No one had really studied them much at all. And then this guy named uh, Alec Lackman decided he was going to do a study. He was going to pull out the otolith bones from the, some of these fish and age them uh, from from in his home turf in Detroit Lakes and discovered. First of all, the oldest fish he found was 112. And second of all, couldn't really find any fish under 80 years old in that system. And it was because the system had gone to shit, right? And so there was no successful reproduction anymore. It was just all fish that were born prior to it going to shit. Wasn't that something like that? Well, they don't know. Like it had been. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, with all things, it's like, okay, well, here we we found this. We can make a lot of speculative Mm -hmm. Ideas, right? Like, well, that fish landed on your car because two birds were having a fight. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, oh, this elk got stuck in the mud. Yeah. That's how it ended up on your boat anchor or your dock <laughs> anchor, right? Um, and so that's where they're at with this. And, and uh, you know, so they, they do have some funding. They're going to release another paper coming up. But, yeah, the, the idea is something has happened that um, has limited recruitment. So there is, they think, some some successful spawning, but there is no successful recruitment, mean, meaning that um, eggs are being produced and, and laid, but they are not, uh, uh, you know, rearing a new age class of fish. Yeah. Um, and that that's happening in very, very limited doses as compared to other populations that are successfully spawning and having successful recruitment outside of this system. Um, they know that these sucker fish um, can have some pretty amazing uh, migrations for spawning. Okay. And they know that they, that can't happen in this system that they're looking at right now. 
uh, due you know due to some man-made factors. Got you. So they're like, ah, this could be something. And if they look at the fact that they have 80 to 112 year old fish, it lines up very well with uh, how some of these waterways have been manipulated. Yeah, there are a couple things they look at. One is is changing the the hydrology, putting in dams and, and things like that. But the other thing is right around that time was when common carp showed up and common carp fill a similar niche in the ecosystem mm. as these fish. They don't just look alike. They feed similarly. They spawn similarly. Even though they're not at all related, they're in the same places doing some similar things. So it could be that it's because of the changes to this waterway. It could be the introduction to this of this invasive species. It could be considering they know that these fish can be over 100 years old and still be capable of spawning, still be pretty fit in good shape. They may be fish that don't successfully recruit every year or even every 10 years, but they just don't know. Yeah. So it's still a, I mean, people just figured this out last year. So yeah. the, this research is brand new and we got to go hang out with the dude who's doing this research and, and get to, get to meet some of these fish. To say he's interested in what he's doing would be a gross understatement. <laughs> what does he, what does this individual feel about the fact that people go out and fill garbage cans and dumpsters full of carp and probably are mixing in all kind of big mouth buffalo in there. You know, I would say he doesn't like it, but there's part of him. Uh, Alec has a uh, uh, an interesting brain for sure. There's part of him that knows that these people value that fish, mm-hmm. even if it's just to shoot, and that could in turn be valuable to keeping this fish around. When I was out bow fishing with Jared Fink in Wisconsin, they, you could definitely tell, because if you knew what you're looking at, you would know a big mouth buffalo when you saw it and they would like it. Yes. Yeah. They still shoot it. Yeah. Yes. But they would prefer to get it. And 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 that would be like an eaten one. Yeah. And that's one of the amazing things that uh, really came to light um, because we talked with a, a, you know, a guy who, you know, like anybody who really gets turned on to some kind of fishing or hunting, like started bow fishing about 15 years ago. And then he kind of figured out how to be the best bow fisherman and got really, really invested into it. And he holds the big mouth buffalo in very high regard mm-hmm. to the point where um, it used to be that that is the fish he would target to where it wasn't sporting for him to go after carp. And so, but he still likes to shoot them, but he has seen firsthand that the population is going down. Got you. Um, But there's some challenges associated with this, you know, big old fish that are much more desirable from like a sporting aspect, which again could be, you know, something that you could harness for the preservation of this species. And so what were you guys trying to do? We were, well, we were trying to do two things. One, we wanted to go meet this dude and learn about these fish because we got turned on to the story. We think it's fascinating. And in this Detroit Lakes area where we were focusing part of our story, you know, that's the area where they can't find fish or hardly any fish under 80 years old. And I think it was 10 years ago, it became legal to bow fish at night with no limit. And so hmm. guys are pulling out thousands of pounds of fish. You know, we were talking to bow fishers that, yeah, I'd get 500 pounds a night used to be on a regular basis and now they're not seeing them of big mouth buffalo of big mouth buffalo not carp not carp they got 500 pounds of a night this is what this is what we were told not anymore now he's like man i remember 10 years ago you go out you go out for a few hours you literally fill your boat 
Now you go out, you might see a couple. And, and huh. so they're, they're seeing a dramatic change because these fish aren't reproducing Man. and the bow fishers really want to shoot them because they think it's really fun. It's great sport. So they would call it, instead of saying they were going carp shooting, they would go buffalo shooting. Well, they'll shoot, they'll shoot carp or dogfish or sheepshead or, or other things as well. But buffalo were like the prime target. They were apparently the, the most challenging fish and they fought the hardest. So those are the ones that they wanted to get. But were they, were they garbage in them all? Yeah. Yep. So they're still throwing them in a dumpster. Yeah. yeah by and Put large. them out in the field, whatever to help right. them yep. do with. Yep. yep. Exactly. Yeah. The exception, I mean, really, if you, especially if you look at the gross poundage, the exception to the rule would be eating them. Yeah. Yep. I went to a bow fishing tournament one time, kind of like covering a bow fishing tournament and just everything into a dumpster, man. And it was a lot of carp, but it was also a lot of native fish. Yeah. Tons of long nose gar. gar. Yeah. The gar Buffalo thing. fish. Yeah. Dogfish into and a dumpster. I went to a shark tournament one time, and they fill a dumpster. They filled two dumpsters. Really? Blue sharks? No. Yeah. Two dumpsters. The uh, Tennessee sharks. regulations allow you to dump those things back into the waterway that you got them in, uh, which to me is seems more appropriate than throwing them in a landfill somewhere. At least you got nutrients going back into the system somehow, some way. But it is just, it's hard not to see it all as very wasteful. If you can put, if you can go into a fishery and put slot limits in place, you can ask hunters not to shoot female bears, right? You can request that hunters don't shoot uh, nannies on mountain mm-hmm. goat hunts. Shit that takes like a trained eye to figure out. You can put antler restrictions in place. Mm-hmm. Being like, it's got to have three points on one side, whatever. Like, you can ask people to have, like, a little, to have a discerning eye. Why not just have it be that, like, yeah, you can shoot carp. Shoot carp. That's that's Don't precisely what buffalo. they're talking about here. And uh-huh. and we got to have a really, I, I felt like it was an interesting and productive conversation with a couple of hardcore bow fishers who love to shoot buffalo. And Alec Lackman, this, this biologist. And, and have a dialogue in place that was really more about, hey, we need to talk to, we need to talk about finding a way to manage these fish because this is not sustainable. No one's pointing anybody out as like, you're the bad guy, you're the good guy, whatever. In fact, shooting carp out of there might really help these fish. So by all means, don't stop bow fishing, but let's think about how we manage these fish because this is not sustainable. But because this research is so new, you know how long that stuff takes to filter into actual mm-hmm. regulation. Yeah. It hasn't gotten there yet. And so my hope is that by maybe making this episode, having this conversation, we're getting more people to talk about it. The the thing that this can't be is it can't be a situation where we're pointing the finger at bow fishers and saying, you guys are screwing this up because that's not the case. Bow fishers aren't the ones that are preventing these fish from recruiting. They're just doing what they love to do. And if, if we it's can all, get it's them small on board... Additive. It's just like additive stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But if we can get that community on board with like, hey, yeah, we do want to manage these fish because I want my kids to be able to shoot them. That's just a broader coalition of folks trying to figure this problem out instead of factionalizing it and breaking it up. And you're looking at like, you know, the the leave the big ones alone type of adage. The old big ones are the successful spawners. Well, that's literally all that's left. And these big females, these 100-year-old females, like you're talking millions of eggs on the spawn. So potentially, um, you know, laying off them and figuring out what is going to lead to successful recruitment 
could be a relatively fast turnaround too. So it's not like a next generation type of thing. Yeah. Uh, I grew up bow fishing. We used to like to bow fish. I still bow fish now and now and then. I do think that the thing that kind of like justifies the thing that justifies bow fishing when you're just bow fishing to shoot fish and throw them away is that you're dealing with a non-native, a deleterious non-native species. Mm-hmm. So it's like shooting carp. You know, um, if you went to any fisheries manager any serious fisheries manager in the country and said, if I, if you could wave a magic wand and make the common carp vanish from these waters, they would all wave it. Yes. Right? Everyone would wave it. You're not going to go find a fisheries manager, a serious fisheries manager, and say, like, if you could wave a magic carp wand and make big mouth buffalo vanish from their native range, no one's going to wave the damn wand. No. So I just don't, like... The same way that when you're bow fishing, you're not allowed to shoot largemouths. You're not allowed to shoot yellow perch. You're not allowed to shoot walleye. YPs. YPs. <laughs> YPs and Ws. Uh, I don't know, man. It's not. I don't think it's like blaming that. It's not like blaming them, but just like it's like a real management oversight. It's like if you're shooting stuff because you want to throw it into a dumpster, shoot something we don't want. Yeah. But I think, I think there's a, an education problem here because a lot of people do think they are carp. Because people call them buffalo carp. And and yeah. those same bow fishers we were talking to said, like, we thought we were doing the lakes a favor. We thought we were removing a problem yeah. species until this guy Alec came along and told us we were wrong. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not – it is funny, too, because you're like, oh, yeah, I can see how, you know, it's hard to – you're really going to give a kid a ticket for mistaking this fish for a carp? But then it's like all the other things that we do, right? Uh, you can only shoot one hen mallard. And they're flying at 25 miles an hour. So, are you really going to give a ticket, kid a ticket for shooting two? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, for his dad. But then there's all these other things in wildlife management, right? Like, I've talked to people who are pro mountain goat, as pro mountain goat as it could possibly be. And they're like, well, yeah, the tag's got to be either sex because you don't want some kid not, you know, misidentifying a, a nanny for a billy. I'm like, well, yeah, but it's pretty freaking easy to identify a Billy if you put yourself in the right situation. Just ask Pete Munich, who yeah. made the world's greatest video about how to tell a nanny from a Billy. Great video, yeah. And, uh, and, and that's always just been a stumper for me. I'm mm-hmm. like, is it that much of a stretch to ask? I mean, their, their testicle sack is about the size of a cantaloupe. And they seem to be real proud of it. (laughs) Uh, On the goat thing, there are interesting ways they deal with it where um, there's units in Alaska. They give out an either sex tag. It's mandatory reporting. So you have to report your animal. You have to bring it in for reporting. If you shoot a nanny, you don't, uh, you're not eligible for the draw for five years or seven years or something. Hmm. If you shoot a billy, you're up to bat next year. That is fantastic. Yeah. So they haven't made it like they haven't made it wrong, but they've definitely. And I tell you what, when I hunted that unit, um, that t- put it over the edge for me. There are consequences. I was like, man, they really, really don't want you to shoot an Annie, and then we didn't. Yeah, and it was that little thing. I'm like, the fact that that little shame they put into it, <laughs> it's like a little shame with some teeth. Makes a difference. Yeah. 
Now, the recreational aspect of Buffalo, uh, Miles and I talked about this quite a bit. Yeah. I was kind of laughing, you know, and I'm like, yeah, sure. It, yeah. You know, I, if I were in this system and I'd really exploited all there is to exploit, I could see how I could get really into trying to trick these things consistently, but I'm just, I'm not there yet, you know? Mm-hmm. But it is really freaking funny to sit there and do the color commentary while Miles is fishing his ass off for him. You Are you know? trying to sight fish him? Oh, yeah, yeah, all sight fishing. And and we should clarify that in the lake, these fish, again, they're older than my grandparents. Like, there's not anything <laughs> yeah. they haven't seen. They've been shot at with bows. Like, there's nothing that I'm going to do that they're not going to notice, yeah. right? And these fish, will you'll move in, you'll find them circling in these shallow bays. I'm like, okay, I've got one. I see one gallon right over there. I, they can't hear me, but I just start whispering anyway. And I try and make a cast and lead them and drop that. They own their filter feeders. So you got to throw small, small stuff at them, right? I wasn't fishing a fly rod because I wanted to be cool with a fly rod. That was the only way I could get a bait small enough to, to trick them. So they're not, they're not going to pick up a leaf worm. No. Now, according to, I mean, well, I won't say no. The stomach analysis is really, there's lots of like, micro crustaceans Mm -hmm. and then there's these oddball things that alec can kind of theorize on of like you know his cousin has caught two in the same bay on crankbaits oh (laughs) yeah okay so every once in a while they will attack something but but primarily when you're seeing these fish you can watch them because it's clear water they're just cruising through and just like a whale or a whale shark, they're opening their big wide mouths and they're just sucking in whatever's in front of them yeah. and just keep going. So they're not going to move to take something. You can't, you can put a leaf worm out there, but they're not going to like turn and eat it. You have to get something that looks appropriate. Oh, you you're to trying to right land in something in front of his face so he can suck it in on accident? Correct. But it's not, not necessarily <laughs> on accident, right? You yeah, want yeah, it yeah. to look like... A, yeah. a little subaquatic insect, the things that they're eating. But it would that be fish more is not going to move. To avoid it than to just inhale it. Yeah. Type of thing. And what would happen? Then I would set the hook and it would be game on. But you didn't. In theory. In So right. in the yeah. in the lake, I, I would admit. Like, I don't mean what would happen in theory. I mean, what would happen? <laughs> oh, what would happen is that these fish would see us and they'd go from like happily feeding about a foot under the surface. They'd, as soon as they see the boat, they'd drop down like to six feet. And then they get out of arrow range. Yeah. yeah. Could you have been flinging arrows at them? Were they too far out horizontal distance? You could, you could have whacked a few for sure. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So they're up at the surface doing that. It, or in the, like near the, near the surface. Mid, yeah. mid column. Mid column. Yeah. Yeah. Not sucking mud up. No. Right, Not I was laughing they don't have a downturned mouth. Sorry. Cal, I was oh, going to say that actually yeah. their mouth, unlike a lot of those fish actually faces forward. It's not a downturned mouth. Like a, like a, not Park. like a, a red sucker, uh, like a red horse sucker or yeah. a lot of those other sucker species that are, that are really pouty. It's a forward facing mouth. Yeah. If you, if you people out there want to go way back in time, we did a meat eater episode many, many, many years ago, turkey hunting, but we did go out at night and shoot some big mouth buffalo hmm. long ago. But Filmed here, in Wisconsin. What we did do though, was we then chased them around on the Mississippi river where they are spawning more successfully and there are more of them and we we hooked up with this this other dude who consistently catches them and we did hook a few there and uh yeah i still got my ass kicked i broke one they off. came unbuttoned on you I, I broke one off i straightened the hook out on another one another one just just it didn't stick it was it was maddening but it was also like i gotta go back i'm so I'm how so big were they it. 
those fish were more like the, so the ones in the, in the lakes were like 15 to 40 pounds. Wow. The ones in the river were like five to 12. So they were smaller fish. 15 to 40. Yeah. Huge fish. But you'd see that fly drop down in front of them because it's pretty darn clear, you know? And you'd watch that uh, buffalo would like either just like sink below it <laughs> or just like go to the side of it or yeah. whatever. And, and we were laughing. I'm like, yeah, that fish is thinking, ah, umqua hooks. I remember when those came out. <laughs> I had, there's a possibility that I might have had one eat on that lake. Or I might have just flossed it. Either way, the hook didn't stick. I can't. I can't prove it one way or the other. But I had one moment of like hope, and I, by a moment, I mean like a split second. Were you using a? Uh, uh, were you using a trolling motor on Das boat to to z- come up on them? Oh yeah, yeah, sneaking up on them. And like, but they know that noise, man. Yeah. A trolling motor at like one power. Yeah, like because we trolling motors came on. out in 1934. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Some of those fish are like, God, I remember that. <laughs> Funny thing. Those 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 old fish just put me. Man, I Cal was smarter. He was standing in the back, throwing a like little jig head and catching everything else, while I just made a fool out of myself. The goat minnow, Sir Melly. That uh, wow, first time I've ever uh, known a goat minnow. And that thing is catches a wide variety of fish, very consistently. Uh, what? Tell me a couple of things you did catch. Uh, caught some, uh, you know, different panfish species. Caught some crappie. Oh, you did. Bass. Any wally dogs? W's. Yeah, W's. <laughs> no. <laughs> WDs. We didn't, we didn't get any wall. No. I don't think we so. got a couple of pike. Yeah. Um, but it was, yeah, it was funny, like, catching those crappie. And, and it, uh, so the one thing I didn't know but makes complete sense is those sunfish hybridize. Mm-hmm. And somebody caught a hybrid bluegill, red ear, slider, red ear, no, that's a turtle. turtle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a real weird one. <laughs> that was a real weird one. Um, but anyway, it was big, big sunfish. Cool looking. So, uh, what, all right. Episodes we haven't discussed, but I'm just going to skim through them. Yep. When we got to talk Lake about trout. your episode. Yeah. yeah, I thought a little bit about it. Lake trout. Mm-hmm. Um, right near my home. So, you know, we used to catch lake. We, you know, everybody like, go troll, quote, the big lake. Uh, lake Michigan, growing up. And we went out with um, a friend of mine who's a charter captain who normally fishes a boat where they put out, what was he telling me? Seven, they can fish like 20 rods. Yeah, but he says more normal is 17 <laughs> to the point where they have lines with, with using, uh, um, I mean, the so planing boards, fishing downriggers, planing boards, boards, dipsy divers. They're usually fishing lines 60 yards out each side of the boat. So they're covering 120 <laughs> yards of water. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, because they have an array of, like I said, downriggers straight down. Then the next step out, are they're, they're running dipsy divers. Mm-hmm. And they sometimes put so much line out that the dipsy diver is banging the bottom. Really? In oh, 100 feet? 120 feet of water, the dipsy diver dredging all the, the sand is like in waves out there. Mm-hmm. And that dipsy diver is hitting the top of all those sand waves. And then beyond that, you got planer boards, mm-hmm. one, two, and three. So yeah, they got... They're running what fifteen hooks, fifteen lines in a hundred and twenty yard wide swath. 
And you can imagine they locate a couple fish. <laughs> I mean, the thing that I so think about with that a, is so, like the other boats. Like, don't go within 120 yards of any other boat. Yeah, they're real like cautious about yeah. other boats. But uh, so here he is. We we were running. How many were we running? Five. Covered maybe about a 30 yard swath of water. <laughs> so he was very frustrated. But still, he's a lake trout catching machine. We still caught a lot of fish. Yeah. Looked like you guys did pretty no, well. Was, we had a great time. And that, that little boat was fun, man. Cause it's like, you know, like when I was a kid, you'd, you know, we had a troll, we had a like a big lake boat, which had to be a Starcraft. Um, and two to four foot waves, you'd almost kind of think about not going. Four to six, you're like, there's no way. Two to four would suck. Zero to two was cool. Uh, on the, the the day we went out, glass. Like, never happens. Never happens. I mean, never life. happens when you plan in a trip six months. You know, it's like, <laughs> it happens, but it doesn't happen when you're like, we will fish on June 7, you know? Yeah. And then, like, you show up on June 7, it's like, you're like certainly it'll be, like, the worst day of the year. But no, glass. Glass. Yeah, that was amazing. I lost five out of my seven planned days on Green Bay musky fishing last fall. Because of the weather. Yeah, and I was in a wow. 20-foot bass boat. Yeah, we say uh, Gordon Lightfoot's wreck of the Evan Fitzgerald, he get, offers a synopsis of all the Great Lakes. And he says, Lake Michigan steams like a young man's dreams. Its islands and bays are for sportsmen. Not On wrong. that day, he was correct. <laughs> we had a great fish. And then uh, our very own Danielle Pruitt goes out with... Frank Smethurst. Smethurst. And they love, fish. Love Smith. I wish Smethurst was here. They catch a variety of fish. They're targeting another um, fish of ill repute. <laughs> the freshwater drum. The, the freshwater sheep's drum. Head. The sheep's head. Yeah. Another much maligned native fish. That was a fun one. That was a really fun episode. And then we talked about Yanni. Oh, and Yanni did in my home state, in his home state, Yanni did the. Um, the fishing trip that elicits eye rolls for many people, which is when <laughs> a thing happens in a thing happens in Michigan where you get the hex hatch. And they'll cover your garage door. If you have like an overhead light above your garage, you'll wake up in the morning and mayflies are covering your garage door. There's like local legend of the roads getting so slick with mayfly smashed mayflies that cars careen off the road and crash. It's a real thing. Bringing out the snow plows to clear them. Yeah. Big ass, you know, uh, big ass mayflies. And every year you'd see them and every year you'd talk about how sometimes, you know, yeah, you got to snow plow the roads to get the mayflies, <laughs> which I never saw happen, but it's like a, a thing. I've heard about it. I, I always thought that had to be BS. And when know. you go up to fish the hex hatch, which we did, you go up and you stand in the dark and get mauled by mosquitoes and you listen to a fish now and then go <laughs> in the dark. And you're like, I don't know, cast over that way. <laughs> it sounded like it was that way. <laughs> it sounded like it was out in the river. <laughs> yeah. You, and Yanni goes and does that fish. Yanni drew the short But he straw. goes, but he went with a dude who a- actually has success at it. I, it's not the kind of thing, I didn't, it, growing up there, it didn't strike me as the kind of thing that you just went up and did on a whim. It seemed like the kind of thing you got to kind of like study it. Yeah. There's a lot to it. Well, I think trying to, to target any hatch there, there's so many factors as to when those those insects hatch and when the fish choose to eat them that you got to be really dialed in to even give yourself a chance. And even then, it's a crapshoot. Yeah. Like, but climbing down off some bridge, wading through the mosquitoes and staying <laughs> in the dark down there listening, <laughs> it's hard to... You're like, you're like, yeah, we'll stay till one or two. Have you tried? Oh, yeah. 
No. You're like, yeah, we'll stay till one or two. I don't know. Maybe daybreak. And then about 11, you're like, yeah. <laughs> I'm cold. This sucks. <laughs> yeah, let's go. <laughs> I think I heard one. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely gave Yanni the, the, the short straw on that one. I but he winds one. up with a tanker. Well, I don't want to yeah. ruin the story. Don't ruin the story. He, and that's the episodes. Yeah. We got six episodes. I think and we got them all. Talk about how they how they how how people can go watch them. Uh, these are going to start. The first one is going to be available starting September 13th. They are on the Meat Eater YouTube channel, or you can get there through the website, themeateater.com. And we're going to keep releasing them every week, a new episode every week till we run out every Sunday at, uh, I think, 11 a.m. Montana time. So check them out. Whether if you like the first season, definitely check them out. If you didn't see the first season, watch them both. Go, go back, catch up, and watch the second season. Das Boat Season 2. Dose boat. <laughs> Couldn't call it dose boat because then people wouldn't be able to find it. Yeah, we weren't allowed. To, we worked it in though. You worked it. I gotta say, you worked it Dos in. boat. I, I didn't come up with it. You didn't? No, shit. I didn't come up with that. I don't know who came. I up think with Josh Pristine came up with Was it. Was that Josh? He comes up with all kinds of funny yeah. little sentences. Yeah, that would make. I sense. always tell him he works best uh, sub sentence. He works best shorter than a sentence. <laughs> Phrase. He's very Phrase. good at when it comes to putting one or two words together, he excels. He's Not that there's guy. anything wrong with his sentences, but he just partial sentences is where his sweet spot sits. Man. It's all that marketing background. Yeah. Brevity. Quick. Two words. Yep. One word. Two words. No, that was a good one. That was a good one. All right. Oliver, thanks for coming by. Thanks for having it's me. It's great to have you here. Yeah. You've participated in a bunch of our stuff now. Yeah, that's rad. Appreciate that. And, you guys um, are doing awesome things over here. And uh, real quick, tell people how to go find out about you if they want to see your stuff. Oh, gosh. take Pick your poison. Uh, hopefully, meteor.com, right? Yep. Das Boat, seasons yep. one and two. Uh, there's a lot of me on YouTube, Instagram. What's your handle on social? So you can find me on my personal uh, handles. It's just Oliver Nye, it's spelled N-G-Y. And then you can look at a bunch of the Big Bass Stream stuff we've done as well. When people mess up your last name, what do they go with? Oh gosh, it's a uh, it's a crapshoot. Just give me one. N- Nagy, uh, Nagy, Nagy, Nguyen. I don't know where they get that from. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's spelled N G. It's N G Y. I think right. you're underselling it though, man. Like it's not just you got big bass dreams. There's big cod dreams. Like you got if if you're interested in seeing Oliver and his friends catch giant fish, you can see them do it all over the world. Big pike, yep. big Murray cod, big barramundi. It's it you is YouTube, all kinds of stuff. You have a YouTube channel where you yeah where you yeah. guys put fish and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So the big bass dreams channel has the most of it, and then I launched my own personal channel uh, this year as well. So there's even big YP dreams on there, big bluegill dreams. Big, I mean, if it's <laughs> if it's catchable, we want the biggest one. I mean, that's that's the point, right? I got you. So, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. You know what I find real annoying about uh, travel fishing pages on Instagram? No, tell me. People don't tell you what the freaking species is. It's oh. like, hey, my PB, oh. my record best, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I follow. Uh, Rob Allen spearfishing. Yeah. Spearfishing. So it's all Africa. It's like a lot of it's a South African company. I'm like, if you would just start out but tell me what I am looking at. Yes. It drives me crazy. I would be appreciative. But I'm just going through Oliver's uh page here and uh, he does I was like, Oh, I wonder what that fish is and he actually says it's spotted bay bass. Oh, so he's good so, about it. Yeah, it's yeah. a total SoCal fish there. So there's a whole little subculture of that. That's that cool. only looking. lives in Southern California. That's a pretty fish. Yeah, super yeah. rad. 
ounce for ounce, probably the hardest fighting and tenacious fish I've encountered. Cool. And one of the things I appreciated, like when you were down in Australia and you were catching all those cool fish, you didn't just say what they were, but you dive into some of like the basic biology of those fish and why they were interesting. And like, I, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I like big fish, but having that extra context of why they're cool, right. just, just to me augments the experience of seeing it. Yeah. And I'm it, looking at you right here. Is that a giant snakehead? Uh, no. What no. is that thing? A bowfin no, maybe? No, 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 no. What is that? No, I was looking at the skin of something. It was like as close as it's a big small mouth. I was oh, at, gotcha. I was looking at a corner of the skin. Mouth. Yeah, that is a that thing's so fat. It's not not a real good yeah. looking fish. <laughs> Nothing here, makes here for you a guys better are podcast. A whole ton of fish up. Don't bat shame the fish. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. Yeah, I'm checking you out online right now, man. And you're yeah. sitting right here. It's like metaphysical, man. You're just like. <laughs> All right, guys. Joe, anything you got? I know you're way over there and wherever the hell. Got anything you want to add? <laughs> no. That just uh, it was really fun to be a part of the new DOS boat and uh, awesome trip. And I'm I'm really excited for this to come out. Kevin Harlander. Yeah, same. You're so distracted by wanting to go hunt naked. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm getting itchy over here. Um, thanks for letting me be a part. That was a fun trip, Oliver. It's great to fish with you and and uh, see that intensity, man. It was awesome. So looking forward to seeing what comes of it. If it's not too late, I'm gonna have. It. If it's not too late, I'm gonna get in there and try to have it be that you catch a couple bluegills. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Get that edit in there. I'm gonna have them scour. I'm gonna have <laughs> scour the footage. <laughs> and and I'll tack on that, Oliver. You and I need to fish together, man. We need to make that happen. Absolutely. Let's talk about it later today. We shall. All right, guys. Thanks, everyone. Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.